WAPG Airline Pilot Guy Airline Pilot Guy episode 302 Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 505 in the Renaissance Hotel in downtown Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. In this episode, wrong runway landing attempt at John F. Kennedy, Boeing versus Bombardier TIFF continues, recent fume events, American Airlines Christmas holiday glitch resolved. More news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, Coca, Abel, Peter, Tokyo, Nan, Item, Canada, King. That's catchy. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 302 is ready for pushback. All right, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. The uh, Well, it's an aviation podcast, and... I'm a captain for a major legacy carrier based in the United States, and joining me is... Doctor? 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 She's in the uh, beautiful Carolinas. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and most importantly commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot i remembered dr steph <laughs> i would say at least most importantly for this show i don't think anyone really cares too much else about the rest of it maybe the skydiving part because it's loosely affiliated but yeah. yeah well great to be back for episode 302 Woo-hoo. yeah All looking right. forward to a great show well we are as well it won't happen but we're looking forward to one anyway <laughs> and also joining us From his expansive country estate southwest of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. No ho ho, Merry Christmas. You forgot the final bit for this time of year because I'm like a part-time Santa in uh, the big department stores around here, so... You know, I fill my time when I'm not flying and not taking pictures. And no, that is not, not that is not true. <laughs> Although I think it's believable, but I know it's not true. Well, and, be, and before we started, he claimed that he was saintly. I think. Yeah. So yeah. we definitely yes, know. Saint, saint in name only. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that is my name, and that is my persona. What more can I say? Yes. We'll uh, bring up the old curmudgeon later. So. <laughs> <laughs> No, not at Christmas. The old commotion does not come out at Christmas time. Okay, quiet on the set here. <laughs> Joining me in studio, special guest host, former captain and head of pilot recruitment at a large regional carrier, currently a first officer at Acme Airlines, and most significantly, former host of NBC's Today Show, Matt Lauer. Oh, wait a minute. That's a... That's a different. That's a different Matt. Yes. Oh, the name is the same. The spelling is the same. But, uh, <laughs> hey, that's not me. Ah, uh, okay. Well, that's okay. We'd uh, rather have you instead of that other guy. I would. Does... These days, I would hope so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Welcome to the show, sir. Well, and thank uh, you for having me. He was just it. recently exposed to us. <laughs> well, I know. It's kind of rude, isn't it? <laughs> I think that was the other way around, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know where you're going with that one. But, oh, uh, I don't know either. Yeah. So anyway, um, I told uh, Matt about the show and the fact that we were recording the show um, today. Uh, in the midst of our four day uh, four day trip, and uh, uh, when I heard uh, where Matt had come from, I thought, "Hey, do you know a guy named Dana Colton, one of our APG crew members?" And he goes, "Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do." And uh, so we started talking about the show, and one thing led to another. And by the way, you may have heard or may not have that uh, in his uh, uh, intro here, he is uh, used to be head of pilot recruitment. At uh, the Can former company. Can I have a job? Can I have a job? <laughs> yeah. Please. Yeah. Where were you six months ago? Nick? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, anyway, you know, we have. We I know someone who wants a job. <laughs> I often or we often get uh, questions from folks and, uh, you know, we're not always sure about stuff. So uh, we've been Matt and I've been talking uh, over a breakfast buffet about uh, recruitment and stuff. And wow, it's some really eye opening <laughs> stories that yeah. probably can't be told on the show. But uh, yeah, things are crazy out there. It is certainly crazy in the in the regional side of things as far as um, uh, the, the hiring and recruitment is is concerned. It's, um, you know, the pilot shortage uh, you know, everybody has different arguments in both sides. What you know, what's what's caused it and what the reality of it. But I think uh, it definitely exists, just in different parts of the industry and is impacting them differently. But at the it, uh, at the regionals, it was real. There's no question about it. And it was a lot of work. Uh, yeah. So I'm uh, I'm glad to be done with it and, and over here just flying planes around again. But uh, I I enjoyed it when I did it. But yeah, it was a challenge, no question about it. And. Uh I mentioned on our last show that uh, Markson had sent in some feedback asking about that issue regarding his misdemeanor and the driver's license thing in Maryland. And uh, I think we got it right. Uh, he confirmed that uh, he said, you know, that's that's really not a big deal. No, that's, that's small peanuts, I think. I, you, uh, you said I have what? <laughs> small peanuts. Wow. Peanuts. That's really rude. Well, I don't know if that's any better. Uh, <laughs> No, that's not a big so, deal. So, uh, that's not a big deal. How about um, armed robbery? Um, is that uh, <laughs> acceptable? I'm just curious. I mean, armed robbery. It really depends yeah. on how bad it gets. Well, you know what we <laughs> always Nick used is to asking, say. Asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. Asking for a Yeah, this friend of mine. They, uh, I heard that a lot, too. Trust me. I said, oh, this friend of mine. <laughs> uh, I can... I can tell you that the applications that we got, uh, you know, what we would say about each application we get, which was many with issues like this, we'd say we we'll, we just look at each one in a case by case basis, and something that might seem like a, a disqualifier right off the bat, you know, I think in some situations we were forced to kind of to to look at the specifics, the details of it, and, and make a decision. You know, while um, you know, initially you hear somebody has a misdemeanor or something like that. Now, felonies were a disqualifier, of course, but you know, misdemeanors. Armed robbery, this is pretty much I a think felony, would be isn't a felony, it? Yeah, that's pretty serious. Um, well, as the chat room says, only if you get caught. <laughs> that's true. I wouldn't admit to it then if you weren't arrested for it. Yes, but. Uh, um, but I'm such an honest bloke. Yeah, you're a saint. All right. Boy, that was, uh, that, that just it's put everybody, everybody silent. <laughs> Yeah, not often we get a pause like that. I know. It's very unusual. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to leave that one in. I'm not going to edit that one out. It's just like, wow, what happened? Oh, is, is this thing still on? Just the awkward. Yeah, very awkward. <laughs> Pregnant pause. 
so to speak. Uh, so let's see. Why don't we get caught up? Uh, Steph, what have you been up to since the last show? Oh, let's see. Not much. Still just working like crazy. I did mention last time that I was thinking about going flying over the weekend, and then that didn't happen. I um, went to a big college football game that happened here in town instead and consumed some alcoholic beverages. So that was actually a lot of fun. I'm not a fan of either of the teams. It was Clemson and Miami. Uh, they played here in Charlotte last weekend, but uh, was hoping for a good football game. Um, I feel like Miami didn't really show up to the football game, but uh, it was mostly Clemson fans in the, cl- in the crowd anyway, since we're a little closer to Clemson and it was fun to watch. So that was good. Now, this guy right here, he is a uh, graduate of the University of Georgia. So uh, mm-hmm. and the uh, University of Georgia and uh, Auburn University played, sadly, um, for me. Uh, Sadly for you, yes. Yeah. Sorry, my condolences. Yeah, but, but I was Jeff. telling him, you know, I I really do think that uh, Georgia had the better team all along, and uh, I think that they're going to be uh, they're going to represent the uh, Southeastern Conference very well. I hope so. It's the, it's the East. It's it's their turn to yeah to share in some of this. No question. So yeah. All right. Um. Very good. So uh, you have plans to possibly get out and do some flying um soon, Steph. Um, possibly, possibly on Sunday, Saturday for the day, I'm taking a day trip to Chicago to see one of my very best friends from grade school just for the day and catch up and hang out. And, uh, I keep looking at the weather forecast there and now they're calling for snow in addition to the cold weather. So that'll be fun, but really maybe on Sunday when I get back. Captain Nick, how have you been uh, since our last episode? Uh, fitting well, but uh, a wee bit busy. Got back from uh, San Francisco. That was uh, uh, a nice dead head out. And then uh, I operated home, let one of my first officers do the landing because it's much simpler that way. I don't have to worry about reading anything or doing anything. I love that. Um, and uh, <laughs> since then, I have been uh, sort of uh, getting geared up for Christmas. So all the lights are up around the house. Julie has done a great job doing that. Uh, she uh, is popping into hospital for a, uh, a short procedure, but it means that she'll be out of play for a few weeks after. So I've got a bit of compassionate leave from the company. Thank you very much indeed, Acme Red and my manager. You're a hero. Um, so uh, that. Uh, takes me through next week, probably the next show. And then uh, I've got a quick uh, two-night Washington. If anyone wants a beer in Washington, I might try and organize a meetup, but I'm really keen to go for my first time to see the uh, Advahizi Center. Is that no. what it's called? Uh, yeah. uh, try it again. Udvarhazi. Udvarhazi, I think it is. Yes. What language is that? I don't know. It's not English, but that's how we no, pronounce it here. It's Middle Eastern, exactly. States, so. yeah, I think. Oh, right. Okay. Well, anyway, I want to go out there and see some airplanes. And I can only really do it on the Washington Roller two nighters. So this is my chance. So if anyone wants to hold my hand and show me around the Udvahazi Center uh, on my uh, second day, that'd be great. <laughs> no? Where's your buzzer? Udvarhazi. Yeah. Udvarhazi. Thank you. Udvarhazi. Uh, there you go. Right. When are you going to be there, uh, Nick? The, the, the Lufahazi Center. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to be. Oh, that's a damn good question. I yeah, it is a good question. For, <laughs> <laughs> uh, silly me. Um, okay, I get in on so the 15th. Folks at, I've got uh, the 16th. At Acme Red, there. The details are kind of. Eh, it's not that important. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, sixteenth. Um, uh, Saturday the sixteenth. So uh, okay. I land in, uh, on the fifteenth into Washington, and I leave on the seventeenth. So sixteenth's my free day. I want to spend a lot of time out there. So uh, if anyone uh, fancies uh, a day out there, um, I, I'm going to be wanting to see everything, photograph everything, do everything, and be absolutely brilliant. So if anyone knows the place well, I'd really appreciate a guide. Okay. Um, speaking of meetups, and about the same time frame, uh, we we uh, played it on the last episode. We won't play his uh, audio feedback again, but First Officer Craig is going to be there. There's a big surprise, so don't tell anybody. He's going to surprise his fiance Ashley, uh, on December 18th at about 6.30 at Brown's Restaurant in the, I think he said the Covenant Gardens location in the London area. Uh, and they're going to meet up there for a an APG meetup. And uh, Nev is going to be present and accounted for, as well as, I'm sure, some other APG community members in the area. And so if you want to join them, uh, you can contact Nev. It's probably the best thing to do. That way there uh, are no um, spillages of uh, the uh, the secret, the, uh, the surprise for Ashley. But you can also contact uh, First Officer Craig on Twitter, and that's F.O. Craig. And on Facebook, he's Craig Pizik, P-Y-Z-I-K. And uh, so uh, let's see, is Nev in the chat room with us here? Uh, no, I don't see him. But, didn't, uh, didn't see him earlier. Yeah, um, Liz and I am so sad because it's like uh, an hour on the train for me to get there. It would have been perfect. But uh, I'm going to be in Washington. So yeah. uh, I'm very Nev is sorry. There, but yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, he is there. Yeah. yeah. No, Nev, I, I, I might uh, have something delivered to your house for you to take with you if you could manage that. That would be great in that case. Is he talking to me? No, he's no, talking, I'm to, talking Neville. to Neville. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> UK social director. I see, I see. Okay, and then James asked a very funny question: Does Ashley listen to APG? <laughs> no. I don't know. There's of only not. the five of us, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Are there some other people listening? I don't think so. Okay, so there you go. December eighteenth, six thirty p.m. Brown's restaurant. Did I get that right? Brown's restaurant is that like a chain or something that you have over there? Uh, I don't think so. I don't no. think I've ever been there. Well, maybe. Uh, so that's Monday the 18th, is that? Uh, whatever day that is. Yeah, I think that is a Monday. Okay. Monday night. All right. Fair enough, fair enough. All right. Okay. Very good. Very good. Okay. Anything else uh, to talk about before we move on to the coffee fund? I don't think so. Uh, all right. Not for me, sir. Let's do it then. Now, this is where you have to sing with me, Matt. <laughs> Woohoo! Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee, I love tea, I love the java jive and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Poor Matt, he's going, what the heck have I gotten myself into? I'm not familiar with this one. Yeah. Well, Matt, if you start listening to the show, you'll become <laughs> intimately... I guess so familiar with this uh, with this song. It's the Java Jive, and we play it uh, because this is where we talk about the coffee fund. Now, you may notice that our podcast, unlike a lot of others out there, is not supported by advertising. It is 100% ad-free. It's only supported by your donations. So we have a great group of people that uh, already support us financially, and they are part of the coffee fund cadre. And if you want to join them, and I think you should. 
head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. There you'll find out the couple of different ways to do that. And the classic method, the, uh, the original coffee fund via PayPal, is one option, and since the last episode, we have a, a co- contributor to that, a very generous contribution by Jay Kahn. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, the other way that you can become part of the Coffee Fund cadre is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. You know, you heard the phrase, patron of the arts? Sure. Well, this is not really much of an art, but, uh, you know, you can become a patron of the show anyway. And uh, you can do that by, again, learning about that at uh, airlinepilotguide.com or slash coffee. And uh, Patreon is uh, a wonderful service where you can pledge a certain amount of money per episode and then become satisfied with your financial support of the show. And uh, since the last show... That's right. Silence. No new patrons. Oh, oh well. That's okay. we got a great group of patrons already. And if you want to join them, again, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. start with the first uh, item in the news folder, Valeris A319 at New York, just yesterday, December 5th, lined up with runway 13 right instead of 13 left on the visual at uh, the visual Canarsie approach. And uh, again, that's uh, Kilo Juliet Foxtrot Kilo. And that is a big international airport in New York. And boy, I've never heard of this before. I mean, how, no, often, does, never how often does it happen? Never happened but, to me anyway. Uh, yeah, me neither. Yet, anyway, a Valaris. Well, I've watched a uh, um, Qantas seven four four hundred do it, and I was uh, queue in the queue, you know, about three to go, uh, and uh, we were. I was actually taking pictures of the skyline because you know when you're lined up to depart from uh, that runway, the New York skyline's ahead of you, the sun's setting, this guy's coming around on the canals. Yeah, it looks fantastic. So I was snapping a few pictures away because we were like stationary, and and there were still a few ahead of us. And uh, one of which is this 747 coming around. I thought, oh, he's turning a bit tight for <laughs> three left, isn't it? And as he pointed towards us, suddenly the power comes on, the nose comes up, and he starts to go around. So I'm thinking, oh, I think I know what happened. <laughs> so would you please tell our dear listeners, uh, Captain Nick, um, the basic setup of this approach? Well, okay. If it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like torture, you know, your medieval torture. Uh, at least, certainly for us. Um, it's not um, really where I was going with that, but <laughs> okay, go ahead. 
big jet pilots. But, uh, okay, uh, rather than have a nice, neat, straight-in approach to the uh, Runways 13, which they do have. They have got instrument landing systems set up at uh, JFK for both uh, 13 left and right. Um, they would much prefer to bring you in on a non-precision approach, and then they abandon you. That approach abandons you some miles from the airport, and you have to follow a series of uh, visual cues uh, to then track across the ground and line yourself up with the runway. Now, uh, the there are two runways you can line up on, one three right, one three left. So you're doing a right-hand turn. If you do a slightly tight turn, you'll end up pointing at the wrong runway. If you do a nice slack turn and follow the correct visual cues, you'll end up on the correct runway, which this guy was aiming for, one three left. Uh, to be absolutely fair, uh, it's probably uh, in, in poor weather, you're less likely to line up on the wrong one, wrong runway because you're gazing at the ground in front of you, trying to follow the road and then trying to follow um, that strange stadium and then looking for the hotel. And you're looking for the series of flashing lights that lead you through to the threshold, and you're concentrating on that. But on a really nice clear day, I suspect you're sort of gazing around, looking at the airport, and then this very appealing runway, one three right, pitches up, and you can see it quite clearly. Um, and it's very easy just to turn onto it and think, oh, that must be my runway. Whereas, in fact, if you're supposed to trog on a little further and do a, quite a gentle turn, uh, not a very high rate of descent because the, uh, the drop-off point from the non-precision approach leads you quite low for one three left. So you sort of flatten, flatten out for a few miles and then start your three-degree slope. And as you, as you ease around that gentle turn, eventually the runway kind of appears from behind various buildings and parts of the airport. Uh, and then you can see it line up on it. Uh, so it's not unexpected for people to just grab the first runway they see. But if they've uh, briefed the approach properly, got decent notes in their company manuals and things, and they follow the correct visual cues, um, you know, uh, one three left should appear rather than the tight turn that takes you on a one three right. I rather enjoy that approach in in reasonable conditions in VMC, but uh, you're right when when the weather is down to close to minimums for that approach, the VOR approach, and then it does kind of tend to be a little bit nerve wracking and stressful, but um, yeah, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, let's well, on your airplane, Jeff, it kind of would be because, mm -hmm. like, you're on a, a nice, neat, maneuverable jet, yeah. and you obviously enjoy hand flying. There's a challenge there on that approach that is not apparent on most straight-in approaches, which are to be absolutely fair as a yawn. Um, sometimes. <laughs> When you're at a, you know, uh, feeling a little bit weary and the weather's a bit donkel and uh, there's a stiff wind blowing and, uh, you know, you're not really thinking, oh my God. And what's more, from our arrival over the Atlantic, we've got to go all the way around the backside of the airport to get there. So it's another, I don't know, 20 or 30 mile track miles, which really you don't want. You'd rather just slide straight into the two twos or something, but, uh, or three ones, but there you go. Well, I think that that, uh, is probably likely what the Valeris, uh, pilot crew had hoped for but instead they were assigned this uh, uh vr runway one three left approach and they were coming in to land they lined up on the wrong runway a little bit of audio if you want to listen to hey, it tower good afternoon Volaris 880 you are runway one three left Volaris 880 Kennedy Tower good morning or good afternoon wind 170 at one six runway one three left clear to land here to land runway one three left Volaris 880 First year, 4331, wind 170 at 16, only one to right, cleared for takeoff. Takeoff, 
Endeavor 4910, tower, runway 1, to right line for weight. Going up to the wrong runway. Wrong runway. Polaris 880, go around, turn turn left, heading 100. Left heading 100, Polaris 880. Frickier 4231, uh, sorry about that, that guy lined up for the wrong, uh, wrong runway there. Do you find any assistance? Frickier 4231, roger, turn left 1, able. Are you able to taxi back for departure, or do you have to do any checks or anything? And Endeavor 4089, that guy's out of the way, and we went to the right line for weight. I think that was you who called it out at first, right? Thanks for the call, man. I really appreciate that. So, yeah, some, mm. uh, you know, some heads up. Uh, and, and I think we all <laughs> we all do that. Anytime that any of us take a runway, we always kind of look to our right and say, final's clear. <laughs> and then in this case, they probably went, final. Uh, oh, no, final's not clear. Looks no, like somebody's no, no, trying no. to land on this runway. <laughs> And uh, so, unfortunately for uh, Brickyard, by the way, in the news, they were saying it was a Delta Airlines flight. But, of course, that was a, our, one of Delta's, uh, our sister, a, ver- a company very much like the airline that we fly for uh, at Acme. Uh, they uh, have some flying done by some regional uh, partners. And uh, this is one of Delta's regional partners. Um, the uh, Air Shuttle, I think, is uh, their name, it's right? Republic, actually. Republic, okay. Republic is Brickyard. Okay, Brickyard, Brickyard. Republic. There okay. was an error in the, uh, I think it's an error in the Aviation oh, Herald. Oh, okay. Article from it. it says, it does say Shuttle America, but it's actually a, a Republic airline okay. flight. Okay. Um, yeah, so some, 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 you know, good SA, uh, situational awareness by the, by the crews and, uh, no harm, no foul. The uh, Valeris flight uh, was sent around. They got some vectors around and they, uh, landed on two two left, I believe, and and I'm sure they're going to have to do some have some explaining to do, and maybe some paperwork to fill out. But uh, tell yeah. me, Jeff and Matt, have you guys ever done a go round at JFK? Me, no, Jeff. I don't believe I have. Okay, I, I mean it happens quite regularly. I'm just wondering how many go rounds actually go to the four thousand feet, which is generally speaking the go round altitude. Because all the go-rounds that seem to happen in our company, they just want to grab you at like 1,000 feet or 2,000 feet. And uh, quite honestly, that is is way early in a go-around for a big airplane. By the time you're translated, got everything sorted, you're in the middle of the cleanup, expecting to go up to four. They just want to give you a heading and give you a level off. And it's uh, it's really comes uh, unless you're aware of the fact that they're likely to grab you and give you a radar heading and an early level off. It can come as a real surprise. I think next time you should go in uh, on initial contact, say, in the event of a go around, we are going to fly the published missed approach procedure. And they're gonna, <laughs> well, I don't object. To they'll it. probably laugh. Just, <laughs> yeah, they probably will. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just that if they if. You know, why don't they publish a procedure that is what more closer to what they're going to do? Because after we spend all this time briefing uh, and preparing ourselves for something that never happens. Well, you know, in, in my briefing, I always, you know, talk about the published missed approach procedure. And then I say, or we'll just do whatever Tower tells us to do. And that's <laughs> going to be the most likely thing. You know, you're just going to. Yeah. Yeah. There was a change to our procedure recently, wasn't there, for for visual approaches or non island. We're not doing an instrument approach where there's a published missed approach. 
we're supposed to, you know, the start of any go round anyway, is supposed to be what runway hitting to pattern altitude. Yeah, pattern altitude. Which, so you have to think fifteen hundred feet above the ground. So whatever the elevation is, add fifteen hundred feet to it. And I usually have to pull the calculator out to do yeah, that. Right. But yeah, some quick mental math. Yeah. It's never quick, right? <laughs> but you know, before you even have a chance to go up to the pattern altitude, they're probably already telling right. you what altitude to fly, uh, climb to, and which heading to fly, and that kind of thing, uh, just to kind of get you out of everybody's way. But uh, anyway, good uh, good essay by the um, was it Endeavor or Envoy? I I forgot now. The uh, the one Endeavor that, getting cleared on the runway. Endeavor, today. yeah. Yeah, whoever was next. Yeah. Good job, Endeavor. All right. Uh, so you know everybody that listens to the show, or most everybody that listens to the show, has been um, you know aware of the little tiff going on between Boeing and. Bombardier, which now involves Airbus and uh, others, uh, and it's getting kind of, um, it's just not getting any better, I, I guess I could say. Uh, this uh, I clipped, I saw this the other day, Aeromexico. Uh, actually, not that's the one I don't want to do. I want to do this next one here, Canada. Uh, Canada is scrapping a plan to buy 18 Boeing company Super Hornet fighter jets amid a deepening dispute with the U.S. aerospace company. Three sources familiar with the matter said on Tuesday, this is from Reuters. Instead, the liberal government will announce next week it intends, it intends to acquire a used fleet of older Australian F-18 jets, probably one that Nick used to fly. <laughs> I don't know. Well, if- it's funny you should say that, Jeff, because I was uh, tweeting with um, Grant, from Australia, uh-huh. and he was going to my old base. And I said, oh, well, while you're there, see if you can find um, 21-4, well, A21-4, which was the registration of the aircraft that had my name on when I was uh, flying for 77 Squadron out there. And he just came back to me uh, today and said, I saw your jet. It's still flying. It was getting airborne for an exercise. Uh, I was up in the tower watching it. And he said, you'll never believe it. Uh, they think they're going to sell it to the Canadians. Oh, my gosh. I was just joking. Really? <laughs> no. I was absolutely, wow. I was absolutely spot on. So I tell you what, if, uh, if Liz ever gets a chance to look around the Canadian uh, F-18s, perhaps she'll keep an eye out for Liz, my old jet. Liz, which might Liz be I think you should contact the government and tell them to take a very close <laughs> look at that particular tail number. I used to go out and polish it when I was looking, you know. It was, it was sweet airplane. Nick yeah. polishes a lot of oh. things. Steady the bus. Bam. What? Where's Matt when you want to? Yeah. Uh, Only show. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, the uh, relations between uh, Boeing and um, Canada are uh, kind of getting acrimonious. And uh, now they've, uh, you know, looking for other options. And including uh, at the end of this article, they talk about being more open now to possibly taking a look at the F-35 from Lockheed Martin. So I'm not sure if that's a direction they're going to go or not. That's awfully expensive, that particular uh, fighter. But um, anyway, so you have they'd be better off getting uh, typhoons, wouldn't they? Uh, Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to if you're going to start siding with different countries, then I think uh, maybe that's an option for sure. Uh, Yeah. And I'm sure it's a lot cheaper than the uh, F-35. Of course, the the role is a little bit different and the capabilities. Oh, yeah. Capabilities for sure. But uh, so anyway, so you got that. And then the other thing is, of course, you know, just to, you know, remind everybody, um, the uh, Federal Trade Commission um, basically said that they were going to start slapping a very, very high 
import uh, tariff on these Bombardier jets. And uh, again, our sister airline, Delta, has an order in for like 75 of these things. And basically, um, they're going to be about 300%, three times the price uh, that uh, Delta is has uh, agreed to pay. And so now people are doing whatever they can to figure out a way to uh, avoid that uh, extremely high tariff. And one of those ways might be uh, Delta has a partner in their, um, what do you call that, um, uh, that group of, of airlines network, that network or, or uh, other name code share or they whatever you know, partners like partners yeah uh, Aeromexico is uh, partnered with Delta in that and um, uh, Delta owns a stake in the Mexican carrier uh, something like yeah 49 percent almost 50 just shy of 50 percent and apparently they're talking with uh, Aeromexico to accept delivery of some of the 75 C-series planes that were ordered by Delta in 2016, again, in a way to avoid the extremely high tariff. Now, I think the Federal Trade Commission is going to meet uh, early in 2018 to basically finalize whatever decision they come up with. So, you know, it's not a done deal, but I get, it looks like they're, they're positioning uh, to, uh, you know, uh, be able to implement a procedure to avoid paying these tariffs if necessary, if the FTC continues to uh, uphold that extremely high tariff. So uh, that's, I thought was interesting strategy uh, by Delta Airlines to, uh, again, avoid, and they, and basically uh, the, the CEO for Delta said, uh, we are not going to pay the 300% tariff and we are going to take the jets. So I'm not sure, you know, what your definition is of take the jets. Maybe it's taken them by one of our partners. I don't know. Interesting. There's there's a lot of ways uh, to skin a cat, and uh, some very inventive people, I think, are thinking out ways to get around this. Yeah. You know, on the last episode, we uh, had some feedback from um, someone saying that we weren't taking these uh, fume events seriously. And I noticed recently on the Aviation Herald website, uh, that's avherald.com. Um, some more fume events, not smoke and fume events, but just fume events where people uh, become incapacitated, uh, usually uh, not involving the pilot crew, but sometimes the cabin crew and passengers. Uh, a recent uh, Lufthansa Boeing 747-400 uh, experienced the odor of dirty old socks, which I kind of actually like. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm, 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 I'm joking. Uh, the odor dissipated during climb out out of Denver. The aircraft continued the flight to Frankfurt during the descent into Frankfurt about 15 to 30 minutes prior to landing. The odor occurred again. A number of passengers felt unwell. A number of passengers even vomited. A number of cabin crew also felt unwell with headaches, nausea, and eye irritations. According to the information uh, given to the Aviation Herald, one flight attendant uh, is still on sick leave following the flight. Uh, I guess that same airplane had a very similar occurrence just two days later, um, flight 447. Um, so Germany's uh, BFU uh, has been informed of the occurrence and uh, they're investigating. Um, another Lufthansa flight, this time an Airbus 321 from Frankfurt to Barcelona on November 29th, had fumes on board shortly after departure prior to arrival in Barcelona. They made a safe landing in Barcelona. Barcelona. The aircraft remained on the ground for 
two zero hours, uh, two hours and 20 minutes, then uh, departed for the return flight, blah, blah, blah. Uh, according to the information that the Aviation Herald received on December 4th, the entire crew went to see a doctor after landing back in Frankfurt. However, no immediate health issues were identified by any crew member. Three days later, a crew member started to suffer from symptoms related to the fume event and is currently on sick leave. And then finally, uh, Brussels uh, Airbus A330-200 um, also had a fume event, and uh, we'll put the uh, link to that episode in the show notes. But you know, I, interestingly, I, I did a search on Aviation Herald for fume events, and then I got a lot of smoke and fume events, and I basically eliminated all those. And it seems that very few fume events occur uh, with U.S. airlines, and it seems like the concentration is mostly European and and UK carriers, and I'm. I don't know if there is any kind of correlation there or what's going on. I don't know. Do, do all American airplanes smell of smelly socks? I guess so we're just kind of used to that. Yeah. We're that's just, a common yeah. smell. You don't yeah. even notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, exactly. That's probably so why. Perhaps you just can't tell the difference between a smelly sock oil and smelly socks. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I was told by somebody that I should probably wear a new pair of clean socks every day. And I was not aware of that. And so now. A new pair? Well, not a new pair, a clean pair, a clean pair. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And uh, and Matt informed me when I I was going to say that was a that was a sock salesman must have told you that when I took after the show HR is going to have a meeting about basic hygiene. (laughs) (laughs) When I took my shoes off the other day, and Matt kind of like you know you started screaming. Uh, What's wrong? (laughs) He said either we're having. You didn't even notice. You've just become immune to the uh... right. Did we turn the packs on, or did Jeff take his shoes? Off, uh, Jeff taking his shoes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I don't know why that would be, Jeff. Uh, a lot of these events have occurred on Airbus, but they're more engine related than aircraft type related. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. Is there a preponderance of uh, of engines that are prone to it in the UK? I'm not sure. Um, I have got a feeling that once once the word goes around an airline that these are occurring you tend to get a bit a slightly higher concentration because people are alert to it and they're watching for it or smelling for it. <laughs> and when it happens, they, they realize that there's a problem and they obviously uh, you know, want to make sure that their aircraft are as safe as possible for their passengers so they make a note of it. Um, if if people aren't are, are relatively ignorant of the problem, then they're much like, less likely i think to note it but yeah. uh, some of these seem quite severe so uh, uh, they they definitely do occur and when they occur in a in a bad case i think they can be uh, um quite debilitating for the crew um the airbus that i fly recirculates about 70 percent of the air uh having said that it goes does go through a very efficient filter uh, during its recirculation and that would m- most likely take out uh, any aerosol particles because it can take out anything down to uh, down to and including a bacteria uh, cell. So um, it should take out any aerosol particles that are floating around. But w- whether uh, the smell remains uh, and some of the toxicity, if the molecules are small enough, I suspect that might be the case. Um, we have certainly in our uh, outfit had a number of them in the past, uh, but. 
not uh, in the last 10 years can I remember one happening because our engines were all modified, new seals put on in the suspect areas, and they've been very good since. Have you ever had any fume events at all? No, no, not on my, the dirty sock smell I'm very familiar with. But, yeah, um, I've been smelling that for years. And again, not my own socks, but right. on the airplane. After you de-ice, sometimes you, yeah. you smell that syrupy smell. But that, what they call again, the water separator, I think that's to, where it comes from, I think they said. Something um, that we're doing with moisture, I can't remember. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll kind of keep our eyes and ears open for, you know, what's what's going on in that world. I know there are a bunch of folks uh, that claim that aerotoxic syndrome is a real thing, and perhaps perhaps it is. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'll die soon of aerotoxic syndrome. You never know. That's, I hope not. That's the good news. That would be Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> would that be sad? Which after Christmas? We'd be paid to have it. <laughs> Speaking of getting more and more absurd, the show is. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, you know, we talked about that uh, Airbus A380 that uh, had the engine failure back in September and has been stuck at uh, Goose Bay for about two months or so. And then they were going through all this elaborate procedure to uh, try to um, put a dummy engine in the, uh, the failed engine's position and doing all this training to fly on three operating engines, et cetera. And it looked like today uh, was going to be the day that they're going to fly it back to Paris. And so I was looking at Flight Radar 24. They were posting this on Twitter today. I think it took off at 12.15. And by now, I'm sure it's uh, already in Paris. Uh, It turns out that uh, they actually ended up fixing uh, the, the engine that they had hanging on uh, the uh, the bad engine's position. I don't know if that was a new engine or if they just fixed the engine that was broken or what. But uh, according to the latest reports on Flight Radar 24, the engine, uh, the, the airplane, the flight operated with all four engines operating. So uh, looks like they have finally, you know, limped that airplane back to Paris, and uh, they're going to. Uh, I guess do whatever else they have to do to make it airworthy for passenger service. Um, so I thought I'd mention that. Any anything to add on that? Um, no, it just uh, seemed like it was there forever, like sixty something days, yeah. sixty four days, or something. A long time. Yeah, a long yeah time. I'm I'm just confused because you can fly an engine out pretty easily using one of the big heavy lift cargo boys. And mm-hmm. uh, is it a problem uh, getting the equipment to fit it? Because it's such a damn big aircraft. Perhaps you need specialist. Uh, engine changing rigs to uh, to be able to do an engine swap, but it seems a l- little bit uh, unlikely. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, according to this uh, Twitter feed that I'm looking at right here, which is a couple of hours old, Air France has just confirmed to us, Flight Radar 24, that Foxtrot Hotel Papa Juliet Echo is indeed operating on four engines back to Paris. It appears that the aircraft was able to be repaired to a state where a three-engine ferry flight was not necessary. So after all that simulator time and training and everything else to do it with three engines. And again, as, as Captain Nick says, it doesn't seem to me to be a, that big of a deal to fly an airplane basically empty uh, with three engines. But three engines. Apparently- or maybe just, I mean, you could fly it somewhere else. Maybe if you didn't want to cross the Atlantic with it yeah. somewhere where you could get the repairs done. Yeah, I mean, uh, the 340 had a three-engine uh, ferry procedure. Um, uh, I'm sure that 
Well, I'm not sure, actually. I don't know if the charade does. Obviously, perhaps not. Maybe not. But uh, no. Anyway, well, good news is it uh, looks like it's uh, either on the way home or already there. So uh, it'll, I'm sure, be back in service soon, carrying passengers and just purring away in the sky. And our last piece of news in the news folder is American Airlines have solved the pilot shortage glitch at a price. According to aerotime.aero, American Airlines announces that it has solved the problem uh, and we kind of surmise that the way they're going to solve this is that they throw enough goodies and money at the pilots that it'll be solved. And that's exactly what happened. That initial offer of uh, 150% of their normal pay rates, um, as we said, uh, Dana and I said, <laughs> we're not going to do that. I'm not going to give up my, my, my time off for Christmas at 1.5 times my normal pay rate. I'm going to have to get more than that, especially those of us at Acme. We don't even have the 1.5. It's 2.0 times. That's the green slip pay. And apparently that was the magic number for the American Airlines pilots. They worked out a deal where the uh, folks that want to pick up those flights that weren't covered, approximately 15,000, will now be covered by folks uh, getting double pay. So yeah, happy, I'm sure they gobbled them up once it hit 200. Yep. So a, a happy ending. So if you have a, uh, a flight over the holidays uh, on American Airlines, rest assured, unless something else happens like weather or whatever, you know, you're going to you're going to be just fine. Well, I love the way they say if uh, in short, if Santa is flying, so is American. Well, I'm sorry to <laughs> to break it to you guys. You're flying American. I'm I'm not flying on Christmas Day, so uh, that's tough. <laughs> Apparently, they did they did not contact the uh, airline pilot guy show for clarification on that. No, no, no. they certainly didn't contact St. Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the news. So now it's time for the best part of the show, which of course is your feedback. Captain. Thank you. Okay, let's start with this one. Sean sent this in a while back. Virgin Australia Boeing 737-800 at Melbourne on October 20th, 2017. Bird and rabbit strike at once. This is from the Aviation Herald. What? A bird and rabbit strike? How can that possibly happen? Any guesses? Bird Someone threw a bird and a rabbit at the aircraft. That's a possibility. A big bird carrying, carrying a rabbit. A rabbit. Yes, that was yes that's it. So go. the rabbit was riding the bird with a little set of reins on its back. <laughs> or it was being carried in that bird. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, a while back there was an, uh, an incident of a bird slash fish strike where the bird was carrying a very large fish. <laughs> and that's how... I love it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so we'll put a link to this uh, Aviation Herald um, incident in uh, on the uh, show notes. But uh, apparently they felt vibrations shortly after takeoff. The aircraft leveled off at 5,000 feet. The crew advised an eagle carrying a rabbit had just, wabbit, had just impacted their number one engine. And so they came back to land safely. There you go. There you go. All right. Not much more to say about that. Say, Steph, you missed the cue there. What's up, Doc? <laughs> oh, I did. I'm sorry. Uh, I missed it, too. <laughs> Behind my Damn. That looks funny. Uh, let's see here. Sealview, Sealview 
sent in some questions for us. Hello, APG crew and community. Sealview here. Awesome podcast. Lovely old pilots, plane tales. Thank you, Captain Nick. Big fan out there, Sealview is, of the uh, plane tales as well as many others. I've been out of touch with the past four episodes or so, but I promise I'll get to them. I've started logging time in a lovely Cessna 172, and it is a lovely little aircraft, the staple of student pilot making great memories of humble beginnings. So I gave a couple of questions. Number one, can the crew talk about what got them interested in aviation? And we've kind of talked about that before on previous episodes, but uh, I don't know. Do you guys want to talk about that? What got you interested in aviation? Steph, what was what was it that got you interested So I was always interested in aviation, but for some reason, and I don't even know if I have the answer to this in high school and college, then I took a turn for science and medicine and all that. So that's how I got into doing medical school stuff and and going down that route. Um, But no, I've always been interested in aircraft and aviation and all that type of stuff. And then the opportunity came up when I was actually in residency to take flight lessons. So that's how I got officially into aviation. So. Captain Nick. Uh, I grew up in an aviation family. Yeah, my father was a World War II pilot and continued on as an airline pilot. And so it was kind of, you know, we. my brother was oldest brother, eight years older. He was an aircraft engineer. So it, it was just kind of standard um, fare over the dinner table to talk about airplanes. So I, I guess I just kind of... Uh, just fell into the, uh, I won't say fell into, I got incredibly interested in it uh, and uh, just pursued it as a career. I really did pursue it. So that was my way in. Awesome. Matt, how about you? Yeah, mine is, I, I think, uncommon. It's not the, the story like you guys told and, and that you, you typically hear from, from certainly airline pilots, in my experience anyway. I, no airline or no flying experience in my family whatsoever. Uh, I knew nothing about it, really didn't have an interest in it until about the Steph, the, what Steph was saying the time she decided to to choose a career outside of aviation was, was when I made the decision to go into aviation. It was college. I was done with college. And I think I was a criminal justice major at the time, which scared the crap out of my mom. <laughs> and uh, I think it was my aunt who said, uh, you, my mother must have had a conversation with saying, oh, I think, you know, I think he wants to go in law enforcement or something. Um, can you talk him out of it is probably the conversation she had with her sister, my aunt. My aunt ended up, uh, I think, out of desperation, uh, just started throwing out careers. And I uh, mentioned airline pilot. I, like many people, uh, assume that you had to be military to be an airline pilot. But uh, like many things that I, I become passionate about, if I'm not already, I started reading about it, realized you didn't have to be. Uh, you could be civilian trained, which I was, and uh, you know that's when I just became obsessed with it. And, and, and so it was a little later in life for me. I, I graduated college at University of Georgia, with, which had uh, nothing aviation related. I just I was a speech communication major. Did all my training civilian, Part sixty one is what it was called. Uh, flight instructor for a very short time, and then came right into the airlines with the uh, the intent of ending ending up where where I am today. So, um, yeah, my mind was a little different than. Than I, I think many. So, what was the first aircraft that you flew then? Cessna 172. 172. The Venerable 172. Yes, yeah. the M model. I think mid 70s or something. We we affectionately refer to them by uh, or had nicknames associated with the colors they were, which were typically classically 70s colors. Of course, one was orange, interior and out. The whole thing was orange, clad with orange. We called it the Great Pumpkin. Another one was blue. It was we called it Papa Smurf. 
Uh, that was a fuel injected uh, model, and, and, and Papa Papa Smurf was very grumpy in the morning. He did not like to start if he didn't do it just right. But yeah, a, a fleet of one seventy twos is what I did my primary training in. Nice, um, Steph. Uh, same for you, or was it a one fifty? One seventy two. Ah, there yep. you go. I did all my private pilot training in one seventy two. So have had a lot of hours in that uh, aircraft two zero three six four. So. That was at yep. your solo plane. You remember the tail number? Yep, yep. absolutely. Two one five one five was mine. I don't think anybody forgets that. I don't have no. any idea. You forget? Well, yeah. uh, number of years. No. I, I barely remember what happened last week. So, <laughs> <laughs> Captain Nick, do you? Uh, what was your first airplane uh, that you flew? Uh, first pad aircraft, uh, uh, one fifty Aerobat uh, Golf Bravo Alpha Charlie Papa was uh, my solo craft, but I started flying on gliders. So uh, um, the T twenty one Zedberg and the T thirty one were the two gliders I used to fly in the air cadets. So, uh, one was a flying brick, and the other one was as big as a house. It was fun, uh, great times. I think the first time I I actually flew in an airplane and I was, you know, given access to the controls was just last week. No, um, uh, it was back when I was a teenager in Mobile, and um, a friend of my father's had a an airplane. It was a Belanca. And I'm not sure, is Blanca the model or Blanca the name of the manufacturer and then the model is something different? I don't know. Uh, but, of course, I, I, I remember, like the back of my hand, the, the tail number is November 654 Zulu Whiskey. I just made that up. I have no idea <laughs> what the, the tail number yeah, was. Yeah, uh, but then uh, I started uh, flying with uh, another fellow line boy at uh, the Mobile Air Center uh, who happened to also be a CFI, and uh, I think it was mostly in 150s, 152s, that kind of thing. And then uh, uh, that was pretty much it until I went into the Air Force and into the flight screening program, and then we started flying the military version of the Cessna 172, uh, Musk. What I always mess this up—a muscalero or a muscadero? Muscalero, I think, or something like that. <laughs> we've had, we've talked about it on the show. It's just that uh, I don't remember. I don't remember, but uh, and I have no idea what the tail numbers were on any of those either. So I, I think I've let everybody in the aviation community down. <laughs> Maybe I, I'll pull out the old logbook oh. and see if I can uh, re- refresh my memory on that. And then, uh, what's your favorite aircraft that you flew, and why? Any? What's your favorite airplane, uh, Matt? Well, I don't have a, a long list like many people do just because my career was so short prior to the airlines. You know, I trained in a 172, which is probably going to be my favorite just because of the uh, that was the first plane I flew. Uh, and then the Seminole, the Piper Seminole, PA-44 Seminole, I did my multi-engine training in. I flew, you know, a handful of other people's planes from uh, 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 Piper Malibu, it's a PA-46 uh, uh, I got to fly around a Cirrus and SR-22 when those first came out, but uh, you know, no time in that. So I, I think just because of the limited number I've flown, the 172 would, would have to be it. I think that uh, the SR-22 is the one that I would guess is Steph's favorite. You might guess that. But I'd be wrong. But it's actually, you'd be wrong. I do love flying that aircraft. It's, yeah. I, yeah, I'm in love with the Cirrus. But I think my favorite to fly was actually when I did my uh, – seaplane rating uh-huh. and that was a piper pa uh 12 so very similar looking to a piper cub but it's not a cub not technically oh, no okay it's a 1947 
PA 12-150. So, yep. Awesome. That's wow. cool. Lane Street. Thank Brilliant. you very much, sir, in the chat room. He comes up with, uh, he saves me. The T-41 Mescalero, Mescalero yeah. is what the uh, Air Force called those Cessna 172s. Thank you, sir. Uh, Nick, favorite uh, aircraft? The Phantom. 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 Oh, Phantom. Yeah. yeah, it has to be. Just that 20-ton fire-breathing monster. Yeah. Uh, I would say the most exhilarating and most scared I've ever been in an airplane airplane uh, was the T-38 for me in uh, pilot training, the advanced jet trainer. Um, but uh, probably the best overall airplane I've ever flown um, would have to be the TriStar, the uh, L-1011. I, I was hoping you'd say that. I yeah. would have loved to have flown the TriStar. Does the RAF still fly the TriStar? I don't Nick? think. No. Uh, I think they retire that? Yeah. That's um yeah that's a sorry that's a did great you say plane. Death Star yeah the Death Star <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very uh, you know it's a little bulky it's kind of hard to maneuver but you know <laughs> yeah, circular yeah <laughs> okay and uh, anyway though so those are the questions from Sylvie he says I promise I'll record a future date some feedback about what got me got me into aviation yeah do that Sylvie we'd like to hear from you on the last note I was going through another podcast Skeptoid. I stumbled upon an episode about MH370 that the crew and community might be interested in. And uh, so here's the link. And so we'll put that link in the show notes so you can read about uh, chasing Malaysian Airlines MH370, a roundup of the conspiracy theories and the probable true fate of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 by Brian Dunning. So there we go. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, Sealview for your feedback. Yeah, I thought that was a well-written article, but I thought his uh, concept that the probable true fate was that it ended up on the moon was just a little bit... Well, know, I mean, that's that's the most likely, that. I think. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you say- no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing Mr. Dunning down. Uh, did, you, did you like that alliteration? Yes. Um, no, it's actually a very well-written article. Uh, and it does sum up all the wacky theories and then comes up with the logical thought that we'll have is that it's uh, very sadly lying at the bottom of uh, the Indian Ocean. Yep. It's just a matter of time before they find some of the big pieces, I think. Yeah. And we uh, just on that, the uh, um, Times uh, newspaper had an interesting article about it just a couple of days ago where they uh, apparently reviewed some of the photographs that they're uh, photographers had taken from the initial search airplanes and they discovered uh, on those photographs because they took a whole bunch of them uh, what might be have been some wreckage uh, and they know what position that was and so they're saying that if this turns out to be uh, wreckage um, then we've got a much better idea of where it actually hit the ground because this was very shortly after its impact oh. Uh, and uh, that may, in fact, lead. It was uh, just a bit uh, to the north of the uh, expected flight path, but well within the area of probability. Hmm. But uh, whether it turns out to be records or not, a bit hard to say. It was just big square lumps of something in the water. It, you know, unfortunately, there's so much stuff floating around in the oceans. It might be anything, but you never know. It might turn out to be uh, actually a good clue. Yeah, I hope they find it, especially hmm. for the sake of the families. Yeah, exactly. Um, Chris from U42, I think he sent us in some feedback last episode uh, somewhere in uh, in the Salt Lake City area, right, uh, Steph? Yep. Um, oh, gosh, where is uh, – I always like forget which town something West Jordan, I think you said? Or West Jordan. I'm sorry. It's in West Jordan. I should really know. I'm so sorry. I know exactly where the airport is. Yeah. But <laughs> – 
Well, anyway, he yeah. says, thought this might be of interest to the airline pilots. Um, and he said, thank you for all the wonderful job you do and lots of love and gratitude from the Wasatch Mountains. And uh, this is an article entitled, NASA Harvests Slow-Moving Air to Increase Next-Gen Aircraft Efficiency. And we'll put a link to this article in the show notes so you can uh, read it as well. I think there was also some some video that showed this new concept that they're working with. And basically, they're taking uh, some of the laminar flow from the fuselage and uh, in the area of the tail. Um, they're um, like capturing this this airflow and then and enhancing it with an electric motor uh, which is powered by generators on two very small engine mounted i mean wing mounted engines and uh, so apparently the bulk of the thrust is coming from this engine mounted directly on the tail uh, and again as i said it's a it's an electric motor so they're using um, some interesting technologies to uh, try to get uh, uh, some some good thrust and uh, try to cut down on on uh, emissions and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I love this idea because uh, this is the point where the fuselage starts to uh, narrow again, where the air that's uh, streaming down the fuselage will start to break away, and every time it breaks away and becomes turbulent, it's going to create significantly more drag than it did when it was just streaming down the side of the fuselage. And by creating a nice low pressure at the intake of this tail-mounted electric fan, they're going to draw that air in, and um, it will it will not break away into turbulence in theory, I guess it'll, it'll remain attached and then go into this fan and then they'll boost it out the back, um, which is a, a great concept. If they could think of the same way to do it across the wings and uh, perhaps on the wing tips and utilize uh, uh, that area where we would normally get a lot of um, uh, breakaway uh, and uh, in those great big wing tip forces, vortices that gen- are generated there get a lot of uh, drag then that would be uh, another fascinating uh, concept. But NASA are uh, looking at some great ideas. I can't believe that uh, it's taken so long to dream up this idea. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, well, they're not doing anything with you know space or anything, so I guess they have time to <laughs> no. Re- redirect their efforts elsewhere. I mean, you know, it's a practical yeah, yeah. application of things, yeah. so something we use every day. Good so. point. Good point. Twenty percent of power on takeoff and forty-five percent of cruising power, and an efficiency of increased by 10%. Airlines will pay for that, that's for sure. Absolutely. And uh, they call this concept the BLI, Boundary Layer Ingesting Engine. So, very, very cool. Yeah. Good to see uh, some innovations out there. Um, Don, uh, our, our good friend, the uh, pre-buy guy, uh, sent us a link to YouTube, a bunch of uh, nice footage of Mad Dogs uh, from Delta Airlines landing and taking off at Washington D.C. Uh, Washington National, kind of cool to watch. And uh, the more I see of that airplane, the more beautiful it gets to look. Uh, you know, it's just that long, slim nose and those lovely setback wings. Mm-hmm. It's a super-looking uh, video, isn't it? It looks great. They uh, a few uh, dodgy-looking approaches with the wind. I mean, look yeah. hard. Not not the pilots weren't flying them well. They were, 
but it didn't look a particularly uh, easy day. Some of those were taken off. Yeah, that's the appearance anyway. Or maybe they were just inferior pilots. Now, at Acme, <laughs> we, all, we have all the good Acme, uh, the, the mad oh, dog drivers do. at our company. It was, it was yeah. not actual footage of Jeff and or Matt. No, because if it, if it was one coming in, it was just rock solid and it was just rolled on. That would have been my footage and Matt's footage. Um, yeah. yeah, that's what compensating errors. <laughs> uh, Liz always sends us a lot of good stuff. And uh, this was really interesting. Uh, it was an article uh, written by Robert Graves and uh, with a, a forward by Sully Sullenberger talking about um, airplanes and automation. And the uh, title was, Will Computers Learn to Fly Well Enough? before pilots forget how. And uh, so, uh, you know, you all know how I feel about this, that uh, we need to continue to exercise our flying skills because if we don't, we're going to lose them. And uh, this gentleman feels the same way. And uh, I just want to read at least one of these paragraphs that really hit home for me and uh, expressed how I feel about these things. Uh, He says, over the years, I've flown with some truly amazing pilots who could fly the machine like a virtuoso might play a finely tuned instrument. I've also flown with some, how shall we say, less precise pilots who, while meeting standards, didn't go out of their way to make my or anyone else's eyes water at the sight of their aerial proficiency. This has usually been a case of lacking not skill, but rather the motivation for excellence. And I get it. It's nearly impossible to be always on, but over time, an average level of effort will be apparent. And that is just uh, sums up the way I feel about some of the people that I fly with, that they just seem to be flying the old family station wagon, the family sedan. They don't really care how they're doing it. They're not trying to impress anybody, apparently. And as I mentioned to Matt, I mean, I think that uh, what we do as airline pilots is a craft. And I think we should all be doing the very, very best job that we can. And I really, really go out of my way to fly the airplane as smoothly as I can so the people in the back hardly can tell when we're climbing and descending and turning. But uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure I understand why so many people that I fly with nowadays just don't seem to care about that. It's just a job, and they let the automation do its thing, and it's not always the smoothest uh you know, course of action. And, uh, I don't know. It's just like, they don't have any pride in their craft. Yeah. I think that's what it is. You know, we talked yesterday, Jeff at length about this article after you shared it with me. And, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's even more apparent on the airplane that we fly just because the mad dog, uh, requires so much finesse, uh, to, to, to be smooth anyway, most certainly, um, that you do notice when somebody is moving it from A to B, um, and, and just pushing the buttons and moving the levers required to do so, um, it can be very uncomfortable at times if if the airplane is allowed to do the automation, uh, which is crude at best, uh, is allowed to do what it does. So uh, it does take, you know, I like the, the the words, the phrase that he chose in this article, motivation for excellence. It does take that uh, desire to, to go beyond the train of efficiency that we all have um, to uh, you make it smooth and, and, and be a better pilot than just uh, moving the plane from gate to gate and make it a comfortable experience for the passengers. That's, that's, um, that's uh, I, I think, a good 
aspect of when you talk about the professionalism of airline pilots one of the most important aspects of it and you know it goes beyond as we mentioned uh, in our conversation it goes beyond just flying the airplane it, it it's it's how you appear in your uniform and what care you take in making sure that the shirt that you're flying at at some point was ironed i mean i've, I've i was saying to matt that i've seen some guys lately uh, not so much when I was first hired, but lately, uh, are are dressed in a uniform that looks like they've been wearing for two weeks, and they're just starting a trip. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? That uh, I, I'm not sure I understand this attitude at all. Um, now he does, go, you know, make some good points. I mean, several good points in this article. Robert does. Um, uh, for instance, this one in today's highly automated aviation environment, it's becoming more difficult to tell who can fly the airplane well or not because we rarely do it. And when I use the term fly here, I mean to hand fly the aircraft without the use of the autopilot or automation. Hand flying, like any precise or complex human task, is a perishable skill. If you don't practice for a while, you'll get rusty. Any musician knows this. So anyway, he says also that uh, part of the problem is that many airline standard operating procedures are that you basically are required to fly the airplane with all the automation to the maximum extent possible. So that's kind of a counterintuitive thing. If you're being told that you have to fly the airplane with the automation, but you should still hand fly occasionally to keep up your skills, it's kind of like a mixed message. It is. Yeah. What do you think, Nick? Um, We used to have that policy, but the guys that ran the airline when we were doing that, in other words, we were said, you know, leave the automatics in as much as possible, have long gone. Uh, And the word out on the street now is fly the airplane as much as you want to. And when you do, feel free to take out both the auto throttle and the auto uh, pilot so that you can fully uh, manually fly the airplane. And, uh, you know, so long as it's appropriate, you know, so long as you're both feeling reasonably uh, fit and uh, you haven't done too long a drag through the night, then it's, it's ideal. I think it's, it's, it's great. Um, the automation is there to assist us, not to rule us. Uh, and I'm a great believer in uh, when you fancy it, uh, fly it yourself. Uh, I think a, a great measure of the confidence of a pilot is um, when he's happy to take the automatics out. And some do it at minimums, which on a nice day when you've just done a quick tra- trip home from wherever, day flight, I think uh, is is foolish. Some never take the autopilot out until the guy ahead has cleared the runway, just in case they have to do a go-around because they know the autopilot will fly the go-around for them. If they uh, take the autopilot out, they're going to have to manually fly the initial part of the go-around until they can stab that button again. <laughs> Uh, and breathe a sigh of relief. So, yeah, I'm with you. There are there are great pilots out there who fly the airplane better than I can. There are some guys out there who just lack the confidence to do it. And you make a good point. You know, the kind of flying that you do, Nick, is the long haul stuff. And, you know, that's that's a different world. And I completely understand after a super long flight and the fatigue involved and everything else that probably the safest thing when you're carrying all these passengers is to just, you know, use the automation to the greatest extent possible so i know it's a different world that you're flying in the world that matt and i are flying in however we have a lot of opportunities to uh you know practice our flying skills go ahead uh yeah. stuff oh i was just gonna i had two points one the first was um 
you know, this is a topic that we've talked about a lot, just about professionalism and about, you know, any job that's worth doing is worth doing well. And if it's your job to do it, you know, you really should be, uh, you know, trying to polish those skills and, and do it to the best of your abilities. Um, the other point I was thinking about while you guys were talking was, you know, for me, I really didn't have a whole lot of experience with some of this automation until recently when I had more of a chance to fly the Cirrus SR-22. And it's really the only GA aircraft I've flown that has a really good working autopilot that will actually do all of these things. But, you know, it's funny how fast you can get used to that and how fast, uh, especially for single, single pilot operations, where it really is a big help if you're trying to fly in instrument conditions or shoot approaches is just so nice to reduce some of that workload. But at the same time, it really is that double-edged sword where you can become very uh, reliant on it very quickly and not practice those hand-flying skills if you're not careful. So um, I, I can see where it happens. I can see where people become less and less proficient over time. And, you know, like you said, not maybe not because they intended to, but just because that's how they're running the, the operation and just following standard procedures. So. It's a vicious cycle too. I I think that uh, the more you use the automation and let the airplane, the autopilot fly the airplane, uh, the the more rusty you get yourself. And then you know you're flying with somebody and you want to impress them. You know you know what you're doing. You're you're all that. And if you haven't really hand flown the airplane in a while, you're not going to want to show the person that you're flying with that uh, you really aren't all that. Right. <laughs> My desire to hand fly comes more from uh, uh, wanting to prove to myself that i can still do it mm -hmm. rather than the guy I'm, I'm flying with or maybe both i want to prove that well I you're you're a, you're a more that's whole the person right, <laughs> right. that's the right motivation yeah, that you is, know yeah. and that's well, what that's it what should it takes. be yeah, that's certainly. coming from a mature adult right there <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that's where you know that's what separates the people who clearly you know look like they put time and effort into what they're doing and those who don't yeah. because it's that internal motivation it's that internal drive to to do well at your job. I think the ones that really do a, a good job of, of that uh, flying airplanes are probably doing that in every aspect of their life. And it's not just mm -hmm. this that happens to be their job, their, their field of endeavor. It's uh, everything they, they strive for is trying to do the best they can. Um, and I would bet at, uh, at the same time, those who don't seem to really strive for excellence Flying airplanes probably don't strive for excellence in much anything else in their lives. So, using an iron, yeah, you know, before they come to <laughs> work. Yeah. Or you know, you can just take them to the dry cleaners. They do a pretty good job of pressing shirts and stuff. Well, that, yeah, but you gotta, you know, you gotta collect the shirts. You gotta get in the yeah, car. You gotta drive down the street. You gotta wait a couple days and then go pick it. True. Up. It's just what about these hats? You're asking a lot. What about these hats, though, Jeff? I mean, you can't iron a hat. You just have to buy a new one. Yet, uh, yeah. I see yeah. some hats that look like they've been used as a seat cushion for yeah, yeah. a yeah, number yeah, yeah. of years. I love you know, and a lot of guys complain about the hats, but I, you know what? Honestly. Uh, Acme is one of those airlines where that's part of our uniform. It's not an option, uh, although some people apparently think it is. Um, and I think it really makes us stand out. And I, I love it myself. It's not like I wear hats when I'm not at work. I don't. But when I'm going to work and I'm wearing my uniform, I think wearing the hat is really a uh, I think it's a sharp thing. And it really does set us apart from all the other carriers out there or not all of them, but many of them. Integral part of our uniform. Most yeah, of, certainly. And it, you know, it gives you that. Well, otherwise you're just a bloke in a funny suit. Yeah. You, you know, some stripes on your sleeves. Well, I already am that, but you know, yeah. bloke in a funny, <laughs> wearing a hat. 
All right. Anyway, uh, link to this in the show notes. Thanks again, Liz. Uh, really, really, uh, really enjoyed this article. Very well written. And uh, I think that uh, you out there will uh, enjoy reading it as well. Liz has to be one of our best producers, the yeah. uh, amount of good stuff she sends. Yeah. And not only that, but she's all, uh, also a financial supporter, uh, producer, uh, which is kind of a definition definition of a producer, right? You know, supporting financially. And uh, thank you again, Liz, for that nice contribution to our episode 300 celebration and party. We're really sad you weren't able to join us. Uh, it would have been a blast if you had. But uh, thank you again for your very generous contributions to our, our show. Okay. Hey, Rob writes in, Rob Snowden. And so I thought his feedback was good because I think we pilots take for granted, you know, the, some of the terms we use about, um, you know, what controllers do for us and that kind of thing. And so let me read what he said. Uh, feedback. Hi, you may have addressed this in a podcast long ago. Recently, you all talked about general procedures for controllers guiding you for approaching the field for landing. But the approach to Reagan National from the West involves many twists and turns while following the Potomac River. How does this work for that airport? And it seems like it would be fun. I really enjoy your podcast, Rob. Rob, it is. It is a lot of fun. I mean, I guess there are probably some that don't enjoy doing the river visual into DCA, but I think uh, 99% of us really have a blast with it. Um, And it can be intimidating, especially when you've haven't done it very many times, but if you've been doing this thing for basically 29 years of your flying career, it's just, uh, it's so much fun. Um, but just to get to your question here. Um, so controllers, what they do is they basically control you or guide you to a certain point. And then basically whether you're, you're using an instrument landing system approach or a RNAV approach procedure, once you, intercept like a straight in approach you're on your own they don't control you after that they're not telling you oh you need to turn left a little bit you need to turn right a little bit unless you're doing something that they call a um what is it uh, the asr approach the approach uh, surveillance radar i think that's what the asr stands for or a precision approach radar approach where they actually literally tell you turn left turn left turn right and uh, descend, etc. But those kind of approaches aren't very common anymore. Uh, the common approaches that we do are the straight-in approaches using RNAV or ILS um, navigation instruments to guide us to the airport. So the controller really doesn't do that. They just kind of get you to that starting point, and then they basically say you're cleared for the ILS approach or the or the visual approach if you can see the airport. Now, Reagan uh, National, uh, the um, river visual that you talk about here uh, is one of those approaches that are pure completely visual approach Uh, so you are using your eyeballs to look at that river and you are actually following the river as it snakes uh, down toward um, the uh, the mall and the all the monuments and everything else and uh, that's you know you're you're using i mean there are some things that you can use for guidance but it's not like the controller is telling you okay now you need to turn a little bit over there no you need to turn left you need to you know they're not controlling you go ahead as i say if you look at what the um you know the faa has published on the charts or whatnot there are actually published information for the river visual i don't know if you can see what i'm holding Mm -hmm. up to the uh camera there but you know it doesn't give a whole lot of guidance other than this is this is actually what it says aircraft may visually follow the river to the airport or may proceed via the rnav runway 19 approach to is that Sea Talk waypoint? Then follow the river to the airport. 
you have to have weather minimums of 3,500 foot ceiling, three mile visibility. And then it actually, as you're following the river, does give, um, you know, altitude uh, uh, guidance at different waypoints. And most of them are bridges. So it, you know, it names the different bridges and it gives you a little bit more situational awareness too by showing you, you know, your DME distance from uh, uh, the VOR there. So and basically what I do is just uh, it's very simple. I just use the distance measuring equipment, the DME readout, and I just multiply that by three. And that gives me an idea of where yep. my three to one line is. And so at, you know, at, at uh, three miles, I should be at 900 feet at, uh, exactly. at two miles. And that is at the key bridge. Yeah. Just and, uh, and so it's, yeah, just using basic fundamentals. And Go ahead, Steph. It's right. It's right there at the, uh, three DME arc is key bridge and it says 900 feet. There you go. So you're spot on. Yeah. Math. And then you're making that final turn. It's, it's below 500, isn't it? You're about making yeah. that final turn to line up with. Uh, so all the things that we learn about stabilized approaches basically it's fly out, the, out window the window. Yeah. yeah no. <laughs> no, no. It's intentionally unstable. But that's what makes it fun, right? It does. No, that's why it's so thrilling. No and that my first time, and I think I've mentioned this probably a few times on the show, but, but I, I have such a fond memory of it. The first time that I did the approach, uh, I was a first officer on the 727 and we were coming in. I, you know, you just, you take for granted how you are normally making that final turn to line up with a runway quite a ways out, at least, you know, four or five miles out. Uh, at Reagan, you're, I don't know, maybe a mile out, at, if that. Yeah. Oh, I don't even think it's that yeah, probably far. Probably not. I mean, just from it's like very close. Half a mile, <laughs> maybe. And so, you know, your brain is trying to make all these you know, calculations. Okay. I should probably start banking to line up with a runway here. And of course what I did, and it, and of course it was exacerbated by a, an overshooting wind, a wind, you know, blowing me away from the turn in the direction of the runway. And, uh, and I started to turn and I realized almost immediately, Oh, this is not going to work. And we're getting really close to this runway and I'm not aligned with it. And so I think I banked up the airplane, maybe 40 degrees or maybe a little bit more. And uh, nice. I was able to land it. And I still remember the American Airlines uh, jet uh, on the uh, waiting for departure on that same runway said something like on the radio, good show, Delta. <laughs> and I kind of looked over at the captain like, was that a compliment or not? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we're not going to talk about it is what yeah. it is. Yeah, we'll talk about it over some beers. That's right. But it was it was a blast and it still is a blast. I still really enjoy that approach. And that, now you guys don't have uh, this um, data monitoring that uh, we have in the Airbus on your Mad Well, we do. Team, so. We, we uh, The 88 does have that Foqua stuff, it? and apparently they probably go, oh, okay, this is DCA. Just throw all that out. Yeah, it must trigger it every time, I'm sure. Yeah, and they I'm just sure say, it does. Oh, it's DCA. Because okay. yeah. we've looked at the graphs where it shows the, you know, the, the, the approaches that are in red are the ones that are not stabilized based on their criteria for stabilized approaches and i i always say a lot of times when i'm doing a visual approach i said i think i'm right now one of those red lines <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's it. perfectly fine it, anyway uh, i'm just kidding i would yeah. always be that green line perfectly stabilized all the way down where else do we do some of those visuals there's the there's the uh, expressway visual in laguardia yeah there's the uh, you done the harbor visual in the portland maine yeah there's a very pretty one not yeah. quite as much Aerial acrobatics, but yeah. uh, the expressway visual is. Yeah, the expressway visual is a lot of fun, too. Yeah. That's Actually, all three of those are some of my favorite approaches. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks, Rob, for the question. I think, did that kind of clarify to Rob, you know, the fact that uh, the controllers really aren't controlling us all the way down to the runway as far as giving us guidance? 
Yeah, I think he was wondering how the controllers were giving you all those different turns along the way. Yeah. And the answer is they're not. They're not because it's it's visual and you have to be able to see and follow the river. Right. So that's how that works. Awesome. Hey, Jay uh, writes, um, he sent us some feedback in uh, episode 299. He says, hello, Captain Jeff, Barbecue Master Dana, the good Dr. Steph, and my fellow countryman, Captain Nick. First, I just wanted to join the endless uh, line of well-wishers and my congratulations, such as they are on your 300th show, which is an admirable achievement and shouldn't be sniffed at. Sorry if any of my English colloquialisms, colloquialisms there we go, are confusing. Ask Nick. Ah, I, I got all those. Um, the party looked like a blast, and it was good to hear how important your podcast is to so many people around the world, myself included. Thank you for reading out my feedback in episode 299. Apologies for not being as clear on my own situation as I intended, and please allow me to clarify. I mentioned I'm hoping to one day obtain an ATPL, have recently made the decision to dedicate my time and resources to that aim. I currently hold a PPL, which I originally was certified for in South Africa in 2008, and now I'm studying for my instrument rating, multi-engine rating, and commercial uh, here in Australia. As I mentioned before, once I had made the decision to go down this path, what had been decided, but the where, how, when, etc. still needed to be explored. Dana made a good point about doing flight training in the country that you want to be in, or want to one day be employed. But actually, in my case, this wasn't a top priority. I'll explain why shortly. I think my situation is one that is probably very common for a lot of people who have made the switch to aviation later in life. In attempting to work out how best I should proceed, I tried to take a logical approach to analyzing global flight training options, considering multiple factors, considerations, limitations, predicted outcomes. Such considerations included the financial requirements of training, the geolocation, the time requirements, employment opportunities, living standards, and general safety the quality of training, and the ease of license transferal to other authorities. The geolocation issue was not a big factor for me as I felt pretty comfortable living pretty much anywhere in the world. I have lived and worked in the UK, France, Canada, the US, South Africa, and Australia, to name a few, and have had no problems anywhere. My basic thought was if I obtain a frozen ATPL in an ICAO-approved country, I'd literally be happy to work anywhere in the world. If being back home is more important to me later in life, I'll worry about transferring my license further down the line. More of a fact for me was how the location affected the other variables, such as cost, time requirements, etc. The financial requirements commonly cited as a limiting factor, and for me, I looked at not only how much flight school would cost, but also how easy it would be to earn and work in the local currency. In the end, I came up with a simple formula that worked on a points index. Just for one example, I looked at things such as the ratio between average salary, flight training per hour, and then awarded points to places where the ratio was favorable. Uh, after every data set I could think of that would be relevant, including those mentioned above, average entry-level pilot salary, mean pilot salary by country, average furlough rates, etc., I came up with what I considered to be the most balanced appraisal that I could hope to achieve. The best option for me as a 31-year-old graduate with a private pilot license, low hours, good earning potential, and flexible training requirements was Australia. 
For many other people, the answer would be different, depending on their own circumstances. But I have to admit that Australia had not even been on my radar as a possibility before starting that process. I hope this all makes sense. I've probably bored everyone to tears here, so let me just finish off with a question. Acme has the reputation for being the best airline in the U.S., but many of the other U.S. carriers have a less-than-glowing or wait, um, as many of the other U.S. carriers have a less-than-glowing reputation. According to Skytrax, no U.S. airline has achieved more than three stars, Virgin America being the exception. But the average customer rating is less than 30% approval. As pilots, is the reputation of your airline important? Does it have any bearing at all whether or not you wish to work for them? I'm curious to know if the pilots for Ryanair feel the same way about their jobs and airline as those working for Emirates or Singapore. What are your thoughts about the U.S. industry in general? Uh, okay, so uh, for going on, oh, okay, so for going on for too long, many thanks. Tailwinds, unlimited visibility. You know, I think you meant to say sorry, <laughs> but that's okay. You don't need to say sorry, Jay. I mean, wow. First of all, I th- this guy is a very analytical guy. Uh, it could easily be a statistician or a an accountant, an accountant or math major or something, based on all the you know the very uh, elaborate process of uh, coming up with you know what would be the best place to uh, learn how to fly and such. And I I think that I'm glad that you sent all that in. And no, you didn't bore us to tears. I mean, I think that you brought up a lot of uh, salient points as far as what you should consider. And then I think a, the bottom line though is kind of nested in the last portion of your feedback, which is like, does it matter the reputation of your airline or, you know, what does matter? And I don't think that you can say as a generality, what is most important for an individual pilot? I think it varies. I mean, I think that a lot of pilots out there, maybe you'd agree or not, Matt, that uh, they they say, I'm going to try to get a job with United because I live in Chicago and I want to, I don't want to commute, you know, and and that's a, a very, you know, a reasonable thing, you know, not to you know, to be based somewhere where you don't feel like you gotta uh, have to commute to to work uh, every flight, etc. Um, and you may not be concerned about the reputation of the airline. And the other thing you have to consider is that this airline that you want to fly for uh, twenty years ago may have had a fantastic reputation, and lately it's not so great. You know, so that that changes over time as well. I don't know. What do you What do you think? You know, I, having come from the regionals, you know, we, in an effort to recruit and figure out why, uh, you know, it's obvious why pilots uh, in this country, in the U.S. anyway, decide to go to the majors. You know, the majors are where the pay and benefits are. Uh, they have the history. They fly the big planes and all that stuff. But at the regional level, it's 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 far different, of course. So we try to figure out, in an effort to recruit pilots to our airline, for example, you know, why are uh, pilots choosing to go to certain regionals? There's so many of them. Um, you know, is it, does it have to do just with bonuses and stuff like that? Or do things like what kind of reputation, uh, the, does this airline have way in, 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 on their decision? Cause, uh, certainly in the regional industry, there are, there are some airlines, some regional airlines that have, uh, far worse reputations historically, mm-hmm. uh, than some of the others. Uh, and what we found w- was just like you're implying, you, you know, it, it's far more practical reasons that pilots choose to go where they go, um. Uh, it had little to do with their reputation. It had largely to do with where they wanted to be. 
uh, certainly in this country because of its size, you know, uh, quality of life is largely affected by uh, where you live in relation to where you're, where you're going to be based. Uh, that was a top factor. And with truth, certainly money, you know, bonuses, stuff like that weighed into it. But uh, career progression uh, was up there, too. So um, uh, it depends on what level. Like you're saying at the regional level, I don't, you know, I don't think the the reputation of the airline had much to do with why people decided to go one place or the other. Major level, um, you know, maybe it does, but again, I I would be tempted to say, like you're implying, it, it it's it's more practical reasons that yeah. people decide to go where they. You go. know, interestingly, uh, back in the '80s, when I was looking at various airlines, and I'd chosen one, uh, Acme, the one for which I'm flying, which I'm very blessed uh, for. Uh, but the reason why many people chose Acme Airlines back in the 80s was that it was the only airline had, that had never furloughed a pilot ever in its history. Now, we all know, never say never, because you know, chances are it may happen someday. And guess what? It did uh, a few times. Uh, Acme's uh, had to furlough pilots. And so that's just an example of, well, just because an airline has a certain track record or rec- reputation for something doesn't guarantee that it's not going to change as time goes on you know you look at it in the present day make the best decision you get in the present day exactly and and not worry about what because you know 180 degrees different certainly in the, the just the decade that i've been in the industry right how things have turned out no question anybody else yeah i i personally get a great kick out of uh, working for an airline with a good reputation um there's no doubt about it that we're not a big airline uh, we're certainly not a big competition for a lot of other airlines that fly the same routes, but we do have a little sort of niche, a little uh, kind of boutique feel to us because we do things just a little bit different uh, in Acme Red. And um, I think that uh, feeling of uh, a bit of fun um, that runs through the entire airline it was a great factor. For me, joining, I had a choice of a number of airlines to go to, uh, some of which had exactly the same base and things, so that didn't make any difference. Um, I could have joined an airline that was already 35 years in existence, and it would have gone bust on me six months ago, uh, or not even that long ago. Um, as it was, I joined an airline that was only 10 years old and only had 10 airplanes. Um, uh, and it's probably the best decision I made. And the reason I made that decision almost certainly was because the guy who introduced me to the airline was a very senior flight engineer, and he just enthused about the atmosphere and the working environment and the fun I was going to have in this airline. And really, that's what drew me to it. You know, it was like a personal recommendation. And uh, I've obviously had our ups and downs, but I haven't looked back since. I've thoroughly enjoyed being with Acme Red. They're absolutely brilliant. The whole Acme family is just awesome. Sounds like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love. Go ahead, Steph. Nick actually just said what I was going to add to this whole thing, because certainly it's not my profession, but I've been around a lot of folks who have been especially uh, getting into their beginning careers, regional careers, and what they've been looking for and what I've heard from them. Um, You know, certainly the things that Matt mentioned, they're looking for pay and location, but they're also looking for, you know, they're talking to folks who are in those airlines currently and they want to know who's happy where they're at and who's, who has a good quality of life and who's being treated well. And that makes a big difference as well. So it really does. I, you know, when I interviewed with several uh, other carriers, 
um, it's it's funny how immediately you get a kind of a feel for the the operation and their attitudes about certain things. And one of the first interviews that I went to uh, was U.S. Air, and I was not impressed at all. I was like, I hope that I don't have to choose this one or this is the only one that offers me employment because and it happened to be like one of the top airlines of choice for the guys in the 80s in in my peer group because they they had the reputation for uh, being upgraded to captain within a very short period of time and and when I say short period of time not compared to what you're hearing these days uh, for instance at our carrier uh, but uh, like within five years which is unheard of and you know back in the Eastern United, TWA, Pan Am, Delta, American, you know, et cetera, uh, carriers, you know, just like what, you know, you know, get, get upgraded to captain within five years. But then you had to look at in the fact that they had a very, it was a narrow body only fleet. They only had like a handful of wide body jets and the kind of flying that you're going to do, you know, you don't have a lot of choices with, and you had to kind of think about the, the the end game and and the the long run and all that kind of stuff and so you know initially you might be making really good money really really quickly but then that's going to you're going to basically hit your peak very early on in your career and that's going to be it so uh anyway just uh, thought i'd throw that out that uh, I, I really got a just didn't feel like the place for me when i went there for the interview and then going to american airlines and their facility very impressive very professional um, same thing with Northwest Airlines. Uh, very, very impressed with uh, their their whole training facility and their interview process and everything else. But uh, Acme was the one that, that that's where my heart was. Not because they had never furloughed anybody. It's just because I thought that Acme was just the best carrier out there in my mind. And, uh, and I was so happy to get hired by them. So... Anyway, well, thank you very, very much, Jay, for your clar- clarification, and uh, I'm sure that they helped a lot of people, and uh, look forward to hearing uh, more about your journey. And now, what we've all been waiting for, the the, the pinnacle, the, the best part of the show, which, of course, is not only your feedback, but Plain Tales, this week's installment. Take it away, Captain Nick. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales Coca Abel Peter Tokyo Nan Item Canada King As the apocryphal tale goes, there was a major at the front who, unsurveying the enemy forces ahead of him, saw a perfect chance to attack. However, his small force wasn't sufficient to grasp the opportunity. Hastily, he told his sergeant to get a message to the general. Send reinforcements, we're going to advance. The lines of communication to the general sitting happily in a villa some distance back were somewhat complicated. The sergeant ran to the telephone operator and told him what to say. Getting quickly onto the blower, the telephone man contacted the radio station and shouted the message down the crackly line. The radio man smartly fired up his set, and tuning it in, passed the message on. Next it was given to a runner, who in turn told it to a motorcycle dispatch rider. Ploughing through craters and potholes, the dispatch rider drove up to the villa. 
He was far too dirty to be allowed into the presence of the general, so the officer of the day was called. He listened to the message and strode to the general's aide-de-camp. Having been given the message and looking a little puzzled, the aide-de-camp climbed the stairs and knocked politely on the door of the general's dining-room. On being called in, he sidled up beside the general, who was enjoying a nicely hung pheasant, and spoke into his ear. "'Sorry to disturb you, sir,' he muttered obsequiously. "'A message from the front. The major requests, send three and fourpence, we're going to a dance.' And so it was that the phonetic alphabet was created." Well, not quite, but back before the First World War, when communications weren't quite up to the high-fidelity quality that we're used to, there was a real need for a telephonic spelling alphabet. It wasn't as if there suddenly appeared a single alphabetic code that everyone used, because various different ones popped up all around the world. Even by the Second World War, many nations still used their own different versions. The U.S. used the Joint Army-Navy Radiotelephony Alphabet. This became known as the Abel Baker, after the first two letters, and a similar one was also in common use with the Royal Air Force. This one was similar to the Royal Navy phonetic alphabet created in the First World War. A couple of the words are still in common use amongst civilians. F for Freddy and S for Sugar. As World War II progressed, America, Australia and Britain had their versions standardised by the Combined Communications Board into the Charlie Charlie Baker Peter 1, the Combined Communications Board Procedure Number 1. At least we were now all calling a love, easy, tear, tear, easy, Roger, all the same thing. But greater minds were on the job at Harvard University's Psychoacoustic Laboratory. Here they examined all the various alphabets from the USA, Royal Air Force, Royal Navy, British Army, AT&T, Western Union, RCA Communications and that of the International Telecommunications Convention. According to a report on the subject... The results show that many of the words in the military lists had a low level of intelligibility, but that most of the deficiencies could be remedied by the judicious selection of words from the commercial codes, and those tested by the laboratory. In a few instances where none of the 250 words could be regarded as especially satisfactory, it was believed possible to discover suitable replacements. Other words were tested, and the most intelligible ones were compared with the most desirable lists. A final NDRC list was assembled and recommended to the CCB. Some letters were obviously difficult, and some were really messed about with. Let's have a look at N, which in 1920 started off as Nancy, under the Universal Electrical Communications Union, Washington, D.C. code, but became Neufchatel at the International Radio Telegraph Convention, Washington, D.C., 1927. 
Not satisfied with that, in 1932, the Madrid General Radio Communications and Additional Regulations changed it to New York, which survived the 1938 Cairo International Radio Communication Conference codewords and the 1947 Atlantic City International Radio Conference. However, N4 New York became complacent, and at the 1946 ICAO second session of the Communications Division, the same as the joint Army-Navy version, N was changed to NAN, and later Nickel. Nickel had a short life, and next year it was changed into Nancy, and then later in the same year to Norma. Norma managed to keep going for a couple of years until Nectar came along. As sweet as N for Nectar was, although it survived the 1951 ICAO code words changes, it became a chilly November in 1956. November turned out to be a long month, as it lasted to today, some 61 years later. Some letters have had pretty exotic code words. C was Casablanca. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Some seem destined to dash around the world, from Baltimore to Brazil, Hanover to Havana, Madrid to Madagascar, Sardinia to Santiago. Zanzibar to Zululand to Zurich. So we ended up with the modern IKO version, which has remained more or less unchanged since 1956. Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, Golf, Hotel, India, Juliet, Kilo, Lima, Mike, November, Oscar, Papa, Quebec, Romeo, Sierra, Tango, Uniform, Victor, Whiskey, X-Ray, Yankee, Zulu. The reason for all the changes were defined by the requirements laid out in ICAO in 1948. They must be a live word in each of the three working languages, be easily pronounced and recognised by airmen of all languages, have good radio transmission and readability characteristics, have a similar spelling in at least English, French and Spanish, and the initial letter must be the letter the word identifies. Be free from any associations with objectionable meanings. As more countries joined into the international world of aviation, it became obvious that some words were easily misidentified, particularly with the enormous variety of accents. Testing was conducted among speakers from 31 nations, principally by the governments of the United Kingdom and the United States, and the results gave rise to the list of words we currently use. Not only was the word chosen, its spelling, pronunciation and syllable emphasis was defined. For example, hotel isn't hotel, it's hotel. Generally speaking, or perhaps more correctly, phonetically speaking, the emphasis is on the first syllable, except for November and Sierra, the middle, Papa and Quebec at the end. Of course, numbers also had to be given the treatment, but they tend to be fairly distinct. 
However, one should be spoken as if spelt W-U-N. Three is tree. Four becomes fowa. Five is fife. Seven is seven. And nine grows to niner. Whilst the world of aviation and the military were getting themselves standardised, there were, of course, major communication companies that insisted on having their own. Western Union had one in 1912, and AT&T developed their own in 1917. These had strange words like X for Xanthippe, the wife of Socrates, and U for Uppsala, a city in Sweden. Whilst we are all supposed to be able to speak the phonetic alphabet, regardless of where we grew up, I still miss some of the more exotic words of old. Who wouldn't want to say Ursula, Coco, Eddystone, Francisco, Dado, Hombre, Tripoli, Valencia, Yolanda, and Exquis, or count with Penta, Saxo, Sette, Octo, and Nonna, all used in the past. As much as those might make you smile, the radio operators of the Second World War came up with their own humorous version, which started as A for horses, B for mutton, C for yourself, and continued with such gems as L for leather, N for lope, O for the wings of a dove, P for relief, T for two, V for espana, and wife or mistress. In a similar vein, there are many brevity code words that came into use, probably just to formalise what was common slang amongst pilots. These are now formally defined in a NATO publication, but I can see that some have lasted almost from the earliest days. Perhaps the most famous is angels, a term meaning altitude in thousands of feet. For example, Angels 5 is 5,000 feet. A bogey is an unidentified aircraft and always gives rise to a giggle when someone calls a bogey on your nose, whilst a bandit is an identified enemy aircraft. The US multi-service brevity codes even includes tally for the sighting of a target from the old British list, which included the longer version, tally-ho. Tally-ho is a hunting term which dates back to around 1772 and is derived from the far more ancient phrase tally-hot, a war cry which literally mean swords up. Sounds nasty. This is, boringly, not an official FAA-endorsed phrase to be found in the pilot controller glossary, as the civvy world prefers traffic in sight. Others might amuse. Blow through doesn't give warning of Captain Al's likely behaviour after a curry, but indicates that an aircraft will continue straight through a merge and not turn with the target something I was sadly all too familiar with during my days flying the Tornado F3. Feet wet or feet dry is to cross the coast, while posit asks for your position from a landmark. The fox calls vary depending on what weapon is used. 
Fox 1 is a semi-active radar-guided missile, Fox 2 an infrared-guided missile, and Fox 3 an active radar-guided missile, although in my days that call was for guns. Out of interest, a Mad Dog is a visual detection of an AIM-120 or 54 launch. A Gorilla is a large force of indeterminate numbers and formation, and if one were to engage it, you might well end up in a furball, a call indicating known non-friendly and friendly aircraft are in close proximity to each other. Many are intuitive in that home plate is one's home airfield or ship. Others, many of you will know. Try this one. Bingo. Yep, that's the fuel state needed for recovery, whereas joker is the fuel state above bingo at which a disengagement or bug out should begin. Buster is another old one, which means to fly at maximum continuous speed in military power, whilst Gate demands maximum speed in American afterburner or British reheat. On the other hand, saunter means to fly at best endurance speed. Some words have even made it into civilian use, since a squawk effectively means the same to both an airline pilot using his ATC transponder and a military pilot with his IFF, identify friend or foe. Another might be Wilco, I will comply. There are literally hundreds, and since I would hate to risk boring you, I will leave you with this. It's something that Colonel Jeff might have said on many an occasion. Please feel free to try to work it out for yourselves. The answer will be on the next show. Winchester, tumbleweed bingo, spike in my six, sandwiched, bogey dope, parrot dead, hold hands, scramming home plate weeds. Good luck. Another awesome job. No problem. Hey, um, I just wanted to thank Brian Parrott, who's actually in the uh, chat room right now. It was his idea to cover uh, the phonetic alphabet. And I must admit, when I thought of it as a subject initially, I thought, well, that's going to be a bit short and a bit dry. Uh, but actually, once I delved into it, uh, it was quite fascinating and uh, quite amusing, I found anyway. So I hope you enjoyed that. No, I love that kind of stuff. I was very interested to listen to all of that. That was Yeah, that I was thought great. it was Thanks interesting Thanks very too. much, uh, Brian. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Brian. It was a great idea. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fascinating. Uh, I um, took the opportunity to pop a echo echo uh, while you were talking uh-huh. about phonetics. <laughs> Good thing you didn't take the mic in there, I guess. Yes. Yes. But he usually does. And I, you know, I'm going, oh, really? Uh, not again. Again? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, always enjoy uh, his uh, contribution to the plain tales. It's always really interesting. Um, last week, um, he did the, uh, Alaska 261, which was kind of a little melancholy, actually. It wasn't a, Imagine. as upbeat as the, uh, phonetic alphabet. Uh, did you want to, um, say anything about that, uh, Nick, uh, regarding the, some of the feedback we got or, or not? Yeah. Do you have that feedback available to, I, um, I'm Let just gonna have a quick look. look. In it's my, not in the. Oh, it's in my. Yeah. It's in my email. I mean, I've got it should it. be. I've got it. Yeah, it was um, uh, the the writer 
did ask us for not to use his name. Yes. So, uh, but I, he was um, a first officer uh, on that company uh, at the period you know, during the period, and he knew the captain involved in that incident uh, on Alaska two sixty one that crash. Um, and um, he says that flying into uh, LAX a couple of hours after the crash, radio communications between all aircraft that I heard were professional and normal. There was no hint of an accident. This is important because there had been chatter about the crash on the radio. It, or had there been, sorry, chatter on the uh, crash uh, about the crash on the radio, it may have compromised safety on my jet or others. It would have been a distraction. I didn't know about the crash until after landing. For those pilots, dispatchers, or operations personnel, if you know about an incident, don't discuss it on the radio or a cars with non-involved flights, which I think is uh, great advice. And um, he goes on to say that the uh, crash was almost 18 years ago. Those responsible are gone. Those practices and mindsets are gone. Safety, I believe, is top priority. And I think just the success of uh, Alaska Airlines since that incident uh, is an excellent demonstration of uh, how they change their company uh, thoughts, how they, they uh, completely turned the company around and turned it into a hugely successful and very safe airline that it is nowadays. So uh, I, I didn't mean in any way to uh, besmirch the character of uh, Alaska. I told the story just as it was, but 18 years is a long time, and that uh, airline has changed character an enormous lot since then. It certainly is one Thank of the much for pointing that one of the top-rated uh, carriers here in the country. Uh, great, exactly. great reputation in the last you know decade or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, certainly having flown with them recently, I can certainly attest to that. So, yes, great experiences. We, so we there was no intent to uh, besmirk the uh, reputation of the company. No, but perhaps I didn't make quite enough of the time that is uh, and the water that's passed under the bridge since then. Yeah. So it's all Nick's fault. So that's the bottom line there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> got big shoulders. <laughs> uh, let's see. Frick, our uh, friend in South Africa, sent this is Hi, Captain Jeff and crew. Congrats on 300. Thank you for the effort and time, you guys. She put he put in quotes guys, Doctor Stuff included, devote to an excellent podcast. Here's to the next three hundred, Frick, and then he sent in some news, and it's about Boom, the uh, supersonic aircraft startup, uh, just landed a ten million dollar investment from Japan Airlines, which is pretty cool. That's uh, they're getting some significant support for this. I think they already have uh, seventy something orders 75 or something like that i'm trying to find 76 76 there we go very patriotic um anyway um boom has 70 there we go 76 pre-orders for a 55 seat plane that says we'll be able to slash the flight time from new york to london in just three hours and 15 minutes the firm has said its jetliner expected to enter service by the mid 2020s will fly at speeds of mach 2.2 10 percent faster than the british French joint venture Concorde, which popularized supersonic jet travel in the 70s. Japan's second largest airline has the option to purchase up to 20 of these airplanes and will assist efforts to hone the aircraft's design and passenger experience. And uh, there were some other airlines as well. 
that. I'm not sure if they've named them here in this article. But well, uh, Virgin Atlantic is. Yeah, that's one of them. How many do you guys have uh, pre-ordered? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I, I hope we get some because Virgin yeah. Atlantic will give us a lot of competition. If, uh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Virgin Atlantic, you said. Okay, I thought you said uh, yeah. Acme Red. My, sorry. my, my bad. No. Uh, let's see. It doesn't uh, take long for me to stop thinking. Um, <laughs> well, all right. Could you really fly for one and a half hours at a time, wouldn't it? Uh, I know. It's <laughs> like I can only focus on a very limited amount of time. <laughs> and we're beyond that already. Oh, okay. Thanks, Frick, for that. Uh, oh, you know, speaking of, you know, he said the the guys thing, you know, and, and we use that term for, I do anyway, for, for guys and gals. Um, so everybody's a guy to me. So, I call you know. everyone a guy. So it's. But so I was watching. Find, don't you find that a little confusing in the toilet? Um, I don't usually <laughs> meet many guys in the toilet, but um, not sure where you're going with that one. Anyway, uh, the uh, thing that came to mind is have you been watching this new series on. Uh, what? Uh, I'm trying to remember what the. Um, network is it's uh the the series is called the orville which is kind of like a, a new version or a updated version of star trek but it's not star trek but it's kind of like star trek like and some humor seth mcfarlane uh the guy that uh, created family uh family family guy guy thank you um and others other things who is he's also also a very talented jazz singer by the way a lot of people don't know that um, created this new series and I'm really enjoying it. But uh, one of the odd things about it is that his first officer, who is a female character, everybody refers to as sir. So they say, yes, sir, instead of ma'am. And I'm thinking that's that's weird. You know, you just like every time I hear that uh, when they're saying she gives somebody an order and they say, yes, sir. I'm thinking if I said that to, let's say, my wife or my mom when she was still alive. That would not have been a good thing for me to do. That would have been a derogatory, a big mistake on my part. But apparently, uh, that's uh, that's just the standard term for authority. Uh, apparently, in this uh, this new series set in the future. But I just thought that was kind of odd. And I'm sorry. I well, shared it with you know what? Just side tangent here. I have definitely gotten the yes sir a couple times because I think anytime you speak up with authority about something, people tend to just respond to a figure who's giving an authoritative command and mm-hmm. then there's always kind of like a weird pause and then oh just sorry i didn't i meant <laughs> i was like no no it's fine just yeah i get I no, I guess you, you I can take you it the wrong way i think or i don't think you have to take it the wrong way it's just you yeah. know they were just trying to respond respectfully and carry out whatever you were asking right. that person to do so it's fine okay yes sir that's my take on it um, now, isn't there one of the uh, branches of the U.S. military that uh, call everyone sir, regardless of their gender? Is it the Marines? Or, uh, uh, if, if, if that's the case, I, I have never heard of that. I'm happy be. to be corrected on this because obviously it's not an area of my expertise. Yeah. But, uh, I only have experience with the Air Force and definitely wasn't the case in the Air Force. Unless they've changed things. Maybe they have. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Um, Really, really good show, by the way, uh, for, uh, for those of you out there. If you're looking for something else new to watch, The Orville. Uh, Netflix or Amazon or anything? It or is it? Hulu, I think. Or maybe Hulu. it is Netflix. Yeah, H-U-L-U. You don't have Hulu? They don't over have there. Hulu there. We don't have them on the television. Oh, huh. well, that's a shame. 
I think it's a an it's original. It's on the internet, yeah. So you can you probably have yeah. Hulu. It and sounds I perfect I thing for me because I love that kind of sci-fi. Yeah, uh, it real. I think you'd really enjoy it, and it kind of throws a little bit of humor in there too. Not not like the Family Guy. <laughs> Nothing like yeah. the Family Guy. And I'm sorry. Uh, I, one more time. Can you just say the name of the, the show? Orville? O R like Orville, uh, yeah. right? Orville. The Orville. Um, really, really good show. And I'm not. I don't have the chat room anymore, and um, I can't get it back because of my computer crash. Uh, so I don't know if they're they're saying anything about it at all in the uh, in the chat room, but uh, I you know I highly highly nope. recommend. Nope. Nope. Okay, and uh, I, I can't. I think it's a Hulu original, uh, but it, I could be wrong. Maybe it's a Netflix. Uh, they're mentioning the new uh, the new Star Trek series that is on Netflix that I've been enjoying. Right. That. Um, yeah, this is not. It doesn't associate itself at all with star trek but you if you watch this show you'll you'll understand immediately what i'm talking about it's very okay. it's modeled okay. around that kind of starship kind of atmosphere and we're really going off off all oh, right okay okay Ooh, we go. we're really going off subject here but i did love the series that fox once had called firefly which was oh. fantastic i've heard a lot of people loved that and they only did one season wow. yeah and the fans right. went and you know they they I don't want to use the term but they got upset and then they <laughs> yes the, what was the movie that they came out with to kind of try to uh, quell uh, some of the serenity which uh, yeah. didn't quite satisfy everybody but no uh, it didn't it tried to wrap it up but uh, just in no and of course it was Burt Whedon Burt Whedon I think that's uh, Joss like, Whedon. Joss Whedon, yeah, that uh, um, directed and produced it and wrote their script. He, he was brilliant because he did uh, Buffy, uh, the, the Vampire Slayer. Slayer. Yeah. So, he, I mean, he moved on to other things, but it was so funny. Firefly it was so classic. I, I mm-hmm. just brilliant. It was like uh, Cowboys in Space. It was super. Nice. <laughs> okay. Well, how's that for getting off track, huh? Yeah. Right. My well, apologies for that. We like the tangents. We like yeah. the kind tangents. of aviation. yeah um let's see oh you know this is the time of year where people are putting up their holiday decorations at least here in the in the united states and uh one of the things i don't know if it's happening over in the uk and europe as it is here in the u.s but uh, the latest thing is these like laser projectors things that you stick on like Uh, a little mini tripod in your front lawn and it everyone in my neighborhood has one (laughs) at their house I think they're a well, cop out. They yeah, take all the work right? out yeah, of decorating yeah. the. I didn't want to string up some lights, so I'm just going to project <laughs> some laser lights onto my house. And all the falling off of ladders. And yeah, the where's all the fun? We're That's looking for single balls holiday, burned out. And, you yeah, know. if your if your holiday decorations didn't end with a trip to the emergency room, you've done <laughs> yeah, something takes wrong. Takes the fun out of it. I mean, exactly. just watch National Lampoon's Christmas right. Vacation. You get a little feel for you know how it yeah, really that, should be. That's a requirement. That's right. Well, you, you, can, you can actually tell my age from how far down the house the lights have. have <laughs> they used to be right across the top gutter, just under the roof, just, and just doing the hedges now in front. Is that <laughs> now they're all kind of down at six foot level, so I can just stand and put them up and lastly you just put a red bulb in the, the porch light or something right? <laughs> well, yeah, well it depends on what kind of a holiday we're having <laughs> so uh so these new things you know it's laser lights i don't know how powerful they are i guess they're, they're probably varying degrees of power but um the faa has come out with um a, a warning saying um manufacturers 
Uh, let's see. Well, where should I start in this article? According to the FAA, yeah, laser. The yeah. Okay. Norfolk, Virginia. Holiday laser light displays cover store shelves all across Hampton Roads. Manufacturers claim your home will be covered with thousands of lights with just the push of a button. With these displays are. Uh, while these displays are easy to set up, the Federal Aviation Administration claims that they could pose a major risk to pilots. According to the FAA, lasers can temporarily blind pilots, which is why it is illegal to point them towards any aircraft while in flight. Many holiday laser light displays come with warnings that tell users not to point them towards people or moving objects, like an aircraft. However, faulty setup can cause these displays to point higher than a home and towards the sky. According to Stephen Thomas, a pilot with 48 years of experience, a laser is virtually invisible until you actually hit it. A laser is virtually invisible until you actually... It hits something. Yeah, I'm thinking that's not really right. Um, Laser lights can be quite damaging if they hit you directly in the eye. Most times it's a temporary blindness, but you have to read instruments in the air when you're flying, and it can be a problem. Manufacturers suggest buyers set up their displays from the home so that they can easily see how high the display shines on the home. Oh, far from the home. I'm sorry. I missed a word there. Their instructions also tell users to shine the light on a hard surface like the side of a home instead of a tree. That makes a lot. I see. I see plenty of people pointing them at trees too. Well, this is really? also assuming that these oh, yeah. people are re- the bulk of these people are reading. The <laughs> they're not reading anything. No, no, they're just. I mean, they're not even looking at the packaging. They're like, "Oh, look, this one will change from like Christmas trees to Santa to snowman." So I'm just and they just rip it out of the box and they set it up and it's like all ready to go. And I, I'm not kidding. I should really go do like a Periscope video or something. <laughs> and walking down, walking down my street because everyone has one. Of these. And you're enjoying the heck out of it aren't you can you tell how much i love the laser light decorations they're my favorite (laughs) i think they're great you know if you have some like buttered uh, hot buttered rum before you go walking around (laughs) it'll probably have a better attitude (laughs) i might have a better attitude towards i'm gonna go uh anyway so a hot buttered what did you say Rum. Rum. Oh, rum. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. Or a rub, if you prefer. <laughs> I had a feeling he was beginning there. with B. So. I tell you what, I, I wouldn't think about lasers at all if I had a hot buttered rub. Uh, no, no, beginning with B. But no, but no, let's not go there. It's probably best if we just move on now. Okay, yes. Um, <laughs> well, we fly in there tomorrow, don't we? So we'll have to. Yeah, that's right. We for, do fly to Norfolk, Virginia tomorrow. We'll have to see if, the day, though, thankfully. see if they're heeding the warnings right. by the FAA. I don't know. Somehow to me, this doesn't sound like it's going to be a major problem, but I don't know. It just doesn't seem like they'd be that powerful, but maybe they are. I don't know. What do I know? I'm not the FAA, mm-hmm. who I love and adore. I, I just uh, used to love going around the markets in Hong Kong where these things uh, are Lasers of enormous power, just sold to anyone who pitches up. And uh, they had these ones that did all the Christmassy stuff. And this is years ago, so it just shows how old they were in China. Um, And they were just pointed at a skyscraper beside the market and just light up the the skyscraper. Wow. (laughs) I was just thinking about all the people who were sitting inside this huge skyscraper. They must, you know, uh, these lasers flashing around their rooms. Well, you think that's bad. Nowadays, they make them so powerful that if you point them at the skyscraper, it actually like burns a hole into it. That's powerful. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah, well. <sighs> All right. Uh, Ryan says, hi there. I live in Ottawa 
and I was just wondering if I should go to my local college for aviation management and, and get my ATPL and get a guaranteed interview with Jazz Air or go to my local flight school, Ottawa Aviation Service, and be guaranteed six interviews with six different airlines. And if I don't get a job with them, I'm guaranteed a job as an instructor with Ottawa Aviation Service. The only problem is I was going to go with the Ottawa Aviation Service until I heard that the big major airlines look for people with college or university degrees slash diplomas. And so he was wondering if we could help him out. What should he do? And um, now I know that this is this is Canada. It's not the U.S. Uh, but again, um, Matt worked uh, in uh, pilot recruiting at uh, the regional airline before he got on with us. Um, so what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is Canada. I don't know exactly what the market is like uh, in Canada. My impression, they were having similar problems finding qualified pilots as well. But, uh, you know, it sounds like with all these guarantees he's talking about, they're trying to um, figure out ways to, to get people certainly into the into flying, but into the industry and specific airlines as well. All I can do is tell you what I would tell people. Uh, you know, I did both hiring and recruitment at the regional I was at prior to ACME, and um what I would tell the the, college, the universities we'd go to the the flight schools and stuff like that the students that were are here uh, when I was mentoring um, people sounds like um, what's his name oh uh, it was uh, Ryan I believe Ryan people in Ryan's shoes who were, were just getting into it and trying to figure out how to go about it since there are so many ways to do it um, be wary of guarantees you know because what we've mentioned uh, before you know, earlier in the show is that. Um, you know, the, the, this industry in particular changes so fast. You know, what looks like a good avenue today could be uh, totally different six months from now or a year from now. Um, you know, certainly in our country, in the U.S., uh, there are plenty of regionals that are offering you know, flows to, to their mainline partners. They're offering uh, bonuses, guaranteeing interviews with, with other ma- uh, mainline partners. And, um, you know, the bottom line is in this country, and I imagine, you know, this is assuming it's the same in Canada, is there, there are so many pilots required. It's a buyer's market like you were talking, uh, you and I were talking about earlier, is you don't want to limit yourself to one uh, specific path. You know, it may seem like the path that, that you want to take now. It may seem like the obvious path or a good path, but you don't want to limit yourself by saying, okay, well, I'm going to go to X, you know, do X, Y, Z, and, and this is going to be my path. Because five, you know, certainly a university program, a degree is talking about is going to take at least four years. In four years, the outlook might look totally different. I mean, who knows what's going to happen. So, um, you know, there is going to be a demand for pilot. this we, pilots. This we know. Most certainly in this country, elsewhere in the world, you know, Asia, uh, absolutely, the Mideast, of course, but in uh, Canada, I imagine, too. So there is going to be a need for pilots. You don't want to limit yourself. Uh, to, to one pathway if you can help it. If, if in Canada, the, the main, the, the major airlines, Air Canada, the, I forget the other ones, are, are requiring uh, degrees right now, who says you're going to require degrees uh, down the road? It's likely that as the shortage proceeds and gets worse that uh, that that's going to fall by the wayside right I, that's what everybody is foreseeing in this country I, I i southwest and i just heard today and uh, this is hearsay mind you but i think americans dropped the requirement really wow ready for the and southwest has two well. southwest yeah. oh wow well, uh, it's happening in this co- it's going to happen elsewhere um it's going to happen in canada as well so uh 
you know, certainly cost is a factor as well, too. I mean, you're going to lay out a tremendous amount of money, certainly in this country and I imagine Canada as well, to get a 4A degree in a uh, very limited field as well, like aviation management. What else are you going to do with an aviation management degree? <laughs> Nothing. So, you know, you're going to limit yourself there. Do a podcast. You could go into aviation <laughs> management, obviously. Exactly. No, yeah. Get, get the minimum Manage some that aviation is out there. Right. <laughs> You are in demand, and you will be in demand. You know, is as few guarantees as there are in this industry. Uh, the one we can pretty much rely on, barring some disaster, is that there is going to be a sustained demand for pilots at, over at least the next decade. Mm-hmm. So, get the minimum required. My advice, and this is just me, get the minimum required in the least amount of time possible to make yourself marketable. Uh, you know, and in this country, that's just the FAA minimums, which is now ATP minimums. Mm-hmm. I don't even get an ATP because any region will pay to, to give you your ATP. So uh, get the minimum required while leaving doors open to, to go anywhere you can in the industry at any given point, but also elsewhere in the industry, you know, other industries as well. If aviation doesn't work out for some reason, don't limit yourself to an aviation, being an aviation manager, whatever that is. Right. Um, go to a community college and get a, get a, liberal arts degree anything a business degree is what i would recommend something in the stem fields is what i always tell something where you can you know get to make a career out of uh with uh you know that kind of degree and then get the the minimum required uh certificates and ratings whether it's you know i don't know what uh, governs aviation certification up in canada but you know here in in this country can be 61 141 whatever is the quickest and uh most economic way for you to do it uh, close to home, whatever, whatever's easiest for you. Do it that way and don't limit yourself to, to one specific um, uh, airline through a, a guaranteed interview or um, a- anything like that. Leave your options open is, would be my advice. I hope that answers this question. Okay. I think that's, that's really sound advice. It really echoes a lot of stuff that we've talked about before. You know, the, the whole thing about college education um, for a long time, especially in this country, it has been kind of that stepping stone, that hurdle to getting a a job with one of the major airlines here in the U.S. But I I agree with you 100%, Matt. I think with the way that the shortage is going and just the way things are changing, that might not be something down the road. Um, But I would also say, like you said, don't close those doors too, because if for some reason you can't hold your medical, something else happens, you can't fly anymore. It's not a bad idea to have another career pathway and Absolutely. make it something that you're interested in is what I always tell yep. tell people, because it's the same thing in medicine to, to get into medical school. You don't have to have a degree in, you know, some sort of STEM science, technology, engineering, math background. It can be whatever you want. There's minimum requirements to get in, but it doesn't have to be your main focus of study. So do something that appeals to you so that on the off chance that something does happen and you're not able to fly anymore, that you have something else that you're interested in that lends itself to a career field. So whatever that is. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that it's the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah, Have a plan B and your, whatever you get your college degree in should, I think, be your plan B. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Excellent. It's good to hear that that sound advice you're giving, Matt, is uh, reflects and echoes what we've been saying uh, for the last couple of years here sure, on the show. Sure. It hasn't changed. But, you know, things change. You know, uh, 10 years from now, <laughs> you might we have to have a... We pilots at all, right? Well, that's true. That's right. We're going to just... <laughs> That's wrong <laughs> yeah wherever that is i'm not sure where that is in the uh, layers of windows i have open here um but um anyway 
Well, with that, uh, anything else you want to uh, cover or talk about before we end the show? It'll be one of our one of our shorter versions. It's going to be around two and a half hours or so today, maybe a little bit less, actually, because of our technical snafu earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, or I guess we could go over to the feedback folder and maybe pick out something that you've just been dying to cover. Uh, what do you want to do, guys? You know, I will mention, though, quickly, uh, and this is something that uh, Matt and I um, read yesterday and uh, really enjoyed. Um, uh, Let's see. This is from Tom. Uh, He said he just recently started listening to the podcast, and you guys and gals are doing a great job. I hold a CPL here in Australia, but have been out of the industry for a couple of years, basically with a medical issue. As I prepare to get back into it, uh, medicals in three weeks, wish me luck. Good luck, Tom. Good luck. And let's see. He, he sent this in November 14. Oh, so, so probably right around now. Yeah. yeah. Let us know how it, uh, how it went, yeah. how it goes. Please do. Anyway, uh, as you discussed, um, as you have discussed Remembrance Day in the most recent episode, at least at that time, I thought I'd share a blog post which did the rounds a while ago. I stumbled across it across it on P-P-R-U-N-E, P-Prune, uh, the, the place where... Four out of five pilots are extremely regular, Um, probably three or four years ago. I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or what, but if you haven't come across it already, I think it really makes a good read. And then he put a um, link to this in the show notes, and uh, the site is tailspintails.blogspot.com.au, and um, the title of it is Last Flight, and it reflects a story of a... Um, a, a long retired Navy officer and Hey taco. <laughs> Sorry. I'm being attacked. <laughs> taco is attacking Dr. Steph as we speak. I think doc, I think taco is ready for the show to end. Uh, but, uh, anyway, we'll put a link to this in the show notes is about a, a retired ex Navy officer flying a particular type of airplane. That is not your typical thing that you see at the air shows, you know, the B 17s, the B 24s, et cetera. This is a, a, an airplane made by Lockheed, and uh, the guy thought that they had, you know, didn't have any of them remaining, that they were all scrapped or crashed or whatever. And uh, I don't want to give it away, but it's definitely a really good read. And if it doesn't make you want to, you know, have your eyes leak a little bit, then you're just not human. <laughs> it was touching, right. touching story. Yeah, very touching story. So thank you, Tom, for that. And I'm sure that our audience will love it. So. Uh, with that, I think that uh, Taco has basically said, "Okay, that's it for this show. We're gonna we're gonna shut this thing down because I want Taco to." Is, is the ultimate deciding factor in how yes. long APG runs for every week. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, if you want to learn more about the show, head over to airlinepilotguy.com where you'll find information about the crew, the community, uh, merchandise, the coffee fund, and so much more. Again, that's airlinepilotguy.com. And we have the smartphone tablet apps and uh, for both iOS and Android platforms. On Android, go to the Google Play Store. And on iOS, uh, the Apple Store, uh, App Store, I guess. And do a search for Airline Pilot Guy, and you'll find it. It's ad-free. It's free to – there's no purchase required, and there are no ads in it. And uh, it's, a, it's a great companion. Um, let's what see. about all these ads for Acme Red we keep putting into the show, or even mainline Acme? I yeah, mean, we should be getting some uh, some 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 yeah, revenue for that, we? right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, good point. Exactly. Good luck. 
Um, yeah. So I guess our show is not ad free. Huh? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I'm just saying it would be it would certainly help the coffers if yeah, they yeah. realized what we're doing for them. We're not uh, we're not receiving any revenue whatsoever, um, except for those fine people that are part of our coffee fund cadre. Uh, so again, if you want to learn how to, oh yeah, time for another uh, crew log. I think. Yeah, you know, I, I, I need to put one out as well. As well, yeah, that's one of the perks of being part of the coffee fund is uh, receiving our periodic. Uh, My uh, last one was twenty minutes long. I noticed that, but it was Ooh. well worth it. It was a very interesting one. Uh, I'll so have to listen to it. You should. <laughs> And Sorry, if, if you aren't if you aren't already a part of the Coffee Fund cadre, please consider joining. And uh, just as little as one dollar per episode will give you access to all that fine stuff. Okay, uh, social media. We're on social media, and that's free. And how do we uh, follow us? And I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. But first, I just wanted to say I'm drinking one of the um, beers. Were these from John Brown? Yes. These? The, the ones from Canada, the Ransack the Universe Hemisphere IPA. Excellent really enjoying this so thank you very much and he you know captain jeff did get these to me so thank you john brown dr yes. john brown. thank you dr dr john yep um social media you can find us on twitter using the handle at apg crew we are all there you can find our individual twitter handles pinned to the top of that page you can go over to facebook facebook.com slash airline pilot guy uh, join the community there for all kinds of information information about meetups uh, various topics and information from the internet that's of interest to the community so hope to see you there all right and we are also on another social media ish kind of platform and its title is slack and i'm trying to find <laughs> you've lost hillel uh, hillel's oh, no. around here somewhere hello well, how many how many bathrooms do you have i was gonna well, say it doesn't look like that large of a well, hang on, we gotta we gotta yell for him hello you know what? He might be in your room. Yeah, we should go and find him. Wait. Oh, here he is. Hang on. Let me move out of the way. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Awesome. Thank you, Hillel, for managing that. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. See ya. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline not a guy I fly America Airline not a guy He can't land in heavy fall 
cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I guy Boy, I ain't going.